Hey everybody, welcome back to the Grey Malkin Lane podcast, where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics in continuity order. We are wrapping up our incredible coverage of Amazing Adventures, the six-issue Beast Limited series, basically, that took place in the early 1970s, written by the incredible Steve Englehart. I am so excited. These conversations have been so great, and I'm excited to wrap it up here because this issue is nuts before the title gets kind of abruptly canceled and Steve picks up all of his plot threads and other books later. So we'll talk more about that in the latter half. But we get to talk about the infamous Rutland Halloween uh, parade today, which is a weird place in, in, in comic book history, uh, as well as uh, the return of the Juggernaut. Uh, after that time, Eternity spit him into a, another dimension somewhere. This issue is hilarious. I was reading it with my youngest kid last night, and I was laughing really hard. Uh, I'm so excited to be joined uh, by my dear friend Philip C.V. today, as well as meeting two new friends for the first time, uh, Chris Magnus and the incredible Ryan Katie. Ryan, I, well, I guess we have met twice, but this is your first time on the show. Uh, I'm so happy to have you all here. Let me have you each introduce yourselves. Uh, I'll have you use your name and pronouns. Let us know where we might know you from. And today's question is, where? Uh, what is the best Halloween costume you've ever worn? Uh, let's begin with uh, Ryan Katie. Ryan, welcome to Grey Malkin Lane. I'm so happy to be here, man. Uh, I'm Ryan Katie, he, him. Uh, I'm a writer. Uh, I've done a few things for Marvel and DC, a lot of horror titles for like Image and Top Count stuff. Um, I've never been fortunate enough to write for The Beast, alas. Uh, <laughs> um, and my favorite Halloween costume, I was thinking about this because I'm, um, I'm not a huge costume guy. I love Halloween, um, but dressing up personally is not always my move. Uh, but when I was a kid, there was like a couple of years where we were all really, really into movie effects and like, like actual like wound makeup. And so we would go to this place in LA called uh, like a Halloween club and we would go pick up like spirit gum, wound makeup, fake blood type stuff. And we're in like fourth grade, so we're not great at it. But one year I had like a rebar coming out of my forehead and like, even though we were not very good at this, like the, the angle of the rebar and the spirit gum and like Halloween lighting, it worked really perfectly. And I had like one really good year as a fourth grader where like every adult who opened the door was like, oh, and I was like, perfect Halloween. <laughs> That's fantastic. You'll have to share photos if you're willing. Uh, there's nothing like oh, a piece of rebar coming out of your head. Uh, <laughs> let's go over to uh, to Mr. Chris Magnus next. Hi, Chris. How are you? Hey, how are you? Um, my name is Chris. Al actually, Chris Allo. You probably got my email with Magnus in it. Oh, I'm um, just gonna call you Chris Magnus. It's such a good X Men name. <laughs> uh, uh, let's see. I'm a former Marvel uh, talent manager, editor. Uh, currently, I manage a group of artists. Um, let's see. My favorite Halloween costume probably was way back in 2001, two. I can't remember exactly. Uh, my partner made me a Mister Sinister. And it was just pretty like dead on. <laughs> you know, he's a costume person, so he was able to do all the, you know, the, the extra, the, the little streamers and the back of the cape and the makeup and everything. So it looked really good. <laughs> That's fantastic. Do you want to tell people a little bit about what you do? Uh, so yeah, so I, I manage a group of artists. So basically, I'm uh, an agent, manager, or whatever, and I I basically find work for artists. You know, uh, for uh, you know, at, at various publishing houses. It's really interesting to meet you, man. We've uh, we've had a little bit of email correspondence. I'm I'm fascinated by uh, the space you're occupying in, in this crazy comic book world. It's it's, it's great to meet you, Chris. Uh, and then over to my friend Philip CV. Next, hi Phil. We talk about you on this show all the fucking time now, so everyone <laughs> used to your name every episode. <laughs> I apologize to the listeners who are like, oh, it's like a drinking game at this point. Um, 
Yeah, I'm Philip C.V. He, him. I'm a comic book writer and artist. Um, as it relates to X-Men, I've been working on the X-Men Unlimited series for Marvel Unlimited, the Infinity Scroll Vertical Comics, for the last year or so. Um, outside of that, I've worked a lot for Dark Horse and Top Cow, which is where I got my start in the comic book industry. Both Ryan, Katie, and I broke in together through the Top Cow Talent Hunt in 2014, along with uh, good friends and X-Men people, Steve Fox and Teeny Howard, as well as Isaac Goodhart, who is on the episode you just released today in recording time. Um, in which we talk about you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was listening to that this morning. Uh, yeah, yeah, so that's kind of some of the stuff I've done. Oh, and a uh, Halloween costume, yes. Oh, yes. Um, out, it, I, I honestly just thought of this a second ago. Outside of the fact that Chad and I on the, the podcast have talked about our growing up Mormon, there was a year I dressed up as a Book of Mormon character. Um, and I feel like someone should hit me with rocks for that one. Um, but which, which uh, character? Details. Details. Were you, were you uh, Samuel the Lamanite? Because that's not okay. No, no, thankfully. <laughs> thankfully, it wasn't that bad. It was, it was uh, the Nephi, the first hero of the Book of Mormon. Um, but yeah, no, I think actually the best Halloween costume I ever did. So before comics, I worked, uh, for Goldman Sachs, um, in their wealth management division for a couple of years. And as awful as, <clears throat> as awful as that job and company was, we, our office was really big into Halloween. Every team would do team, uh, costumes and there would be this, you know, big, uh, costume show and prizes. And one year our team decided to do eighties cartoon characters. Um, and I did, a, <clears throat> I did a full like Lion-O from Thundercats, had orange face paint on. <laughs> I worked with my aunt who had like a minor in costuming um, and we sewed a whole costume together. I had a full on like, it wasn't a sort of omens dagger, but it was a fantasy dagger I'd gotten at San Diego Comic-Con when I was a teenager that kind of like really fit and had like a full red wig on. And it was, it was pretty intense and it looked really cool. So yeah, that was, that was probably the best one. That's fantastic. Philip, your name came up in my house over the weekend. I only have one really close straight friend. His name is Corey. Corey's been on my show a couple of times. Uh, we were, great. Uh, when Philip attended my birthday party, we I hosted a roast and Philip introduced himself to all my gay friends as, hi, I'm Philip. I'm the new Corey. He's my new straight friend. And uh, one of uh, one of my friends, George Michael, also a friend of the show, was like, "Oh wow, George Michael, that's crazy." Yeah, that's his name. Uh, he he's a barber. He's a barber who owns a shop named God Shave the Queen, which is amazing. Uh, anyway, he uh, he's like Philip. That's the one that said he's the new Corey, right? That was a conversation <laughs> we had at our house this weekend. Uh, lastly, I'm Chad Anderson. I use he/him pronouns. I am the host of this show. I'm also a former Marvel Comics handbook writer and a documentarian and author. I uh, I've had a few cool costumes. The one that I think I'm most proud of was about six or seven years ago, and I crafted it myself. It was a short yellow mini dress and a yellow bob wig and a, a pair of black heels and an umbrella and a canister of salt that would slowly drip out behind me. I was like, oh, salt girl? And everyone's like, who are you? But when I showed them, they were like, oh, it's one of those characters everyone knows, but no one thinks about. It was a pretty good time. <laughs> Uh, okay, we are going to begin with uh, with Ryan. Ryan, I'm going to start in a weird place, and then I want to and then I want to skirt back and hear your origin story. You have awesome. a weird place. Uh, you're you're someone that I would call an X Men adjacent writer that I could already tell would fucking love to write the X Men, but you've written weird places where you have to dive into the deepest, oddest X Men continuity in order to tell your stories. Uh, you've worked with the Winter Guard and the Imperial Guard. But my first question for you is what's more frustrating to write, symbiotes or Weapon X? <laughs> Whoa, that is a great question, Chad. Thank you. Um, mm, 
So I got really lucky with Weapon X because when I was doing that Brute Force short, they had just sort of decided to do their latest retcon reimagining of Weapon X stuff. And so they <laughs> they were actually pretty... Uh, my Weapon X tenure was pretty, pretty easy because they were like, Brute Force, your Weapon 2. And I'm like, got it. What else do I need to know? And they were like, nothing. Weapon 2. That's all. Don't reference any of the other weapons. And I was like, awesome. Fantastic. Easy. Um, whereas uh, Symbiote stuff is like... Symbiote stuff is intense, man. I don't know if you guys know this, but people really like Venom. People people have strong opinions about Venom. And, uh, you know, you gotta be... You gotta, you got to be careful when you write that symbiote stuff. That's what I'll say. <laughs> uh, Ryan, what is the Weapon X project for our listeners who may be unfamiliar? <laughs> well, uh, it sort of depends. But in theory, broad strokes, uh, it's it's a super soldier program that made Wolverine, who is not, in fact, Weapon X, but is Weapon 10, you see. Uh, and that's he's, where he When he's is. not Weapon Plus. <laughs> when he's not Weapon Plus. Yes, thank you. Uh, what was that what? the event that I was running. I believe that was when, when I was in there, when I was doing Brute Force. Um, but basically it has been sort of I don't know how much this is uh, retcon over time, but it's it's the program that makes Wolverine, but it also sometimes is responsible for Captain America, sometimes is responsible for Brute Force, as in my story, um, has been responsible for uh, other characters in the past, like in, in the event that I was working for, we roped Man-Thing into it. So Man-Thing was a part of it. That was Ben Percy's, uh, uh, I think, he, Weapon 4. So uh, IV. Uh, <laughs> but, Ty yeah. Typhoid Mary's involved. Deadpool's involved. This is yes. content we're going to get into my show probably not till next year. But we'll spend a lot of time talking about this once Wolverine arrives on Grey Malkin Lane. But the simple premise here is... There was a lot of mystery with Wolverine's origins. There's a long-form story where we learn how he got the adamantium on his bones with this secret agency called Weapon X that's been messing with him. There's been like eight different titles that Marvel called Weapon X. They all have different stories. But later writers then tied it all together. Like Captain America in World War II was the original Weapon 1. Weirdly, right. we just talked about these guys on my show because I interviewed Simon Furman, the writer of Brute Force, but Marvel had some Saturday morning cartoon animal hybrid wow. things that were, uh, they're called Brute Force. And then they later got retconned to be Weapon 2, yes. uh, which is a portion of this like Weapon X project, which is also Weapon 10 because of the Roman numeral. Uh, do you want to talk about writing uh, uh, Brute Force? Which who, These characters were also featured in a recent digital comic by Paul Shear, of all people. <laughs> like there's a... <laughs> That is so crazy to me. They Well, Paul referenced Brute Force randomly. I assume that's why, but it was forever ago so i don't know how long it took to work out this story for him but he referenced brute force in an episode of how did this get made and i was like like six months ago i wrote a brute force comic has anyone thought about brute force other than me and paul Shear the last six years and of course the answer <laughs> is millions of people have thought about brute force because that's how fandom works um but uh yeah brute force is wild it is it is 100 a saturday morning cartoon scheme they were like what if we made you know animals that had cyborg powers and it was like not marvel canon um and it was just like a random thing they did to sell toys uh i think it's a four issue mini they get referenced a few times randomly over the years like there's a deadpool issue that does a bit about them um and when they brought me on we were kind of jokingly doing like a heart like an edgy reboot but we wanted to do it metatextual with it so when we originally wrote the short it, the idea was that the brute force comic that people read 
in the real world in the 90s was like a Weapon X propaganda program. And that it was like, yeah, because Brute Force was so sort of like shamelessly commercial, like Captain Planet ripoff style, like they'd fight uh, in those four issues. They fought like environmental troubles and stuff like that. So what we did was we like we were remodeling Weapon X and, and Orcus was just sort of huge at the time because of Krakoa stuff. So it was like, oh, it was all like a psyop. And Orcus was involved, and uh, it was Weapon X research they did on like lobotomizing animals and creating anti-mutant weapons. There is uh, also a Wolverine squirrel out there that's part of this, but we're not going to talk about that that weirdo today. My kids have been asking me, uh, my husband less so, but he's getting dragged in. My kids have been asking me about doing a character episode for the Patreon, and we're going to do Brute Force together. So I just I ordered the original comics, and I'm going to make them read, and they're going to hate them. And I'll get it live on recording. It'll be great. <laughs> they're, they're a blast. They're a blast, but my children have a more sophisticated 2020s palette. So anything involving 80s cartoons, it's never ended very well. <laughs> uh, right, I'd love to take a step back and hear a little bit about your origin story as a fan into a professional, if you're willing to share. Sure. No, uh, thank you. Yeah. Um, I mean, I um, growing up, I was always reading. I wasn't really allowed to collect single issues. Um, my parents were like this collection nonsense is a waste of money. Every time somebody gets to do a fad, you spend a bunch of money on it. You can't collect things. So I grew up <laughs> reading either like I'd go to Barnes and Noble and buy whatever collected edition I could find, or I'd like borrow single issues from friends. Like I remember uh, really young uh, borrowing like a hundred issues of Thor, like Simons and Thor from a friend and being like obsessed. Um, and so so I was always, you know, reading superhero stuff. But then uh, finally, when when New 52 hit, uh, all of my friends, I like to joke that I'm like the New 52 success story. New, uh, New 52, everybody, is like a DC reboot where they did a whole bunch of promotional stuff. It was it was a cool event. But yeah, please continue. I, I, I a lot of people did not like it. And that's fair. Uh, but they, they it was like the one of the biggest everything goes back to issue one and everything is recollectible. So all of my friends were collecting single issues again and we're adults and i was sort of like i could i could buy all these i could spend a ton of money on these uh foolishly um and that time i was already you know i was writing i was doing journalism and i was trying to do more writing stuff and i went to all these signings and it was like the craziest thing and I, again i recognize a lot of this is like the advantage of being in la or being in a big coastal city or whatever but like all these comic creators were doing these signings and it sort of like hit me at some batman group signing or something i was like all these guys their day job is just writing like these guys don't know how to draw these people aren't artists like i'm i can't draw at all but i could do this i could learn how to write this script and sort of sort of just hit me during that era and i just became like determined and, and obsessed and i got an internship at top cow um uh the image imprint and i was an intern there for a long time then i became an assistant editor um and then i was writing for them a little bit and then i was an editor and then I've sort of maintained a relationship with that publisher for a long time. Um, I, I still, uh, to this day, I do uh, editing on Stamp and Sedgwick and Linda Sedgwick's books. Um, and I still do a lot of writing for them. That's fantastic. I have a I have a handful of questions I want to ask specifically about your Marvel work. But oh, I'm please. really impressed with your writing. Uh, everything I've seen you write, you have to come in and explain a whole bunch of continuity on page one. Because all your stuff are these <laughs> little one-issue side projects or backup yeah. stories or limited series. 
but they're lost in not only events, but deep continuity. And you have a really beautiful way of making the essence of the characters show up and, and then telling the story. So I'm going to come That's back to that question. I want to talk about some of your work in just a minute. Uh, Chris, I would love to hear a little of your origin story, if you're willing to share. Yeah, um, I guess probably like everybody else, I'm a comic nerd. I've always been a comic nerd since I'm a kid. Um, I really didn't collect much beyond like Batman and like Transformers and G.I. Joe uh, until you know, uh, my teen years. Um, then I got into, uh, X-Men. I found, I, you know, went to a comic book store and, you know, a just little hole in the wall kind of place. And, uh, there was a cool comic with, uh, Wolverine on the cover, of course, Wolverine, uh, uncanny two Oh five. And it was a Barry Windsor Smith issue. Yeah. Uh, I picked it up and looked at it and it was just like, wow, this is like, what is this? <laughs> Cause like the color palette, the, the very few, Word balloons, this is all very like, it was a comic, but it wasn't really like a traditional comic. It was you know, something a little bit different at the time. Uh, and I picked it up and I read it and it was a, like, basically the story was like a feral Wolverine trying to protect one of the power pack kids, Katie, uh, Katie Power, I think it was. And just him fighting the Reavers and Lady Deathstrike and then Barry Winter Smith's beautiful, you know, choreography and the color palette that he used. And there's, there's, there's just the snow on every page. It was just like beautiful, like this visually stunning piece of, you know, uh, work. Um, so from then on, I just kind of, kind of just stayed with it and just became, I will, first and foremost, I'm an X-Men fan from a comic fan. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, so then I, I kind of got into it and, you know, then I just wanted to just, I just fell in love with the, you know, the, the medium, the art form, really. I fell in love with the art. Um, and, uh, I just, went on collecting comics and started reading more and more and more. When I went to college, I, um, I had to do an internship for, for my degree. It was an English major. And, uh, you know, I applied, I was in New York and I applied to Marvel. I didn't get it. <laughs> so I, whatever, you know, I just kept trying, did other things. And then the, the next semester, I think I, I got a call from like the intern teacher or whatever. And, uh, they're like, Oh, there's a, an internship that opened up uh, at Marvel. Would you be interested in taking it? I'm like, I thought it wasn't available, whatever. Apparently the person who, who was supposed to do it dropped out and they asked me if I wanted to do it. And I said, of course, and it was nothing special. I was interning for like the assistant to like everybody in the office. So like I was doing FedEx, I was running scripts. I was running, I was just, I was doing a lot of running basically to the mailroom and back to editorial offices, but I stayed and I did it. And uh, I wind up being, becoming friends with editors, you know, talking to them, just making myself available to them. Like, Hey, you guys got anything for me to do? Um, and uh, I got a second internship where I got to work in one of, not the X-Men Prime office, but like the X-Men Secondary office, which basically at the time was like X-Force, X-Men, X-Men Hidden Years. I got to talk with John Byrne a couple of times. Uh, and then I just kind of stayed. Uh, while I was there doing that, um, there wasn't always work to do. So I would go and have the art returns person, um, sending out original artwork back to the creators. Um, and I kind of, you know, like I said, I went, when there wasn't editorial stuff for me to do, I went there. And uh, that was when Marvel was starting to digitize their entire library. So the guy that was in charge of our returns was good at digital stuff. So they kind of promoted him to, to sort of run that aspect of things. So I kind of went on, came on full time to do our returns. And through that, um, uh, you know, I met new, a whole new wave of people came in. And um, that's when C.B. Savolsky came in and, uh, you know, started talking with him and just talking to editors, you know, about stuff, about storylines. But for me, the, the best part was getting to see the art. So we would always talk about the artwork, like what was good on this page? What, what, did, this, what did this person nail? Whatever, that kind of stuff. 
And then when CB decided to leave um, to pursue writing, this is going back, um, he recommended me for the talent management position. Mm. Um, so through interviews, whatever, I, you know, I got it. And, um, uh, and yeah, and uh, so I was, I was there. For, for, so I, I was at Marvel from internship to my last day was about 11 years. Um, mm -hmm. So I went, went from intern to, uh, to art returns to, I did a stint in licensing, and then I went to editorial, talent management. Um, and then it's after really, that, it's really interesting hearing this version of the story. These are the same years I was at Marvel, uh, and then a little after, obviously. But I, I, I've always been very remote. It's interesting hearing these stories from another perspective. I, I love it. It's great. Right. But I, I well, was yeah. involved in like the digitizing stuff on my side in, in my own right. right. You know. Yeah. So you, you, you probably, you probably started doing it when they moved to the Fifth Avenue office. I've always been started. remote. I was, I was in Northern oh. Idaho in those years. Yeah. <laughs> it's not anywhere nearby. At R six degrees is uh, you were doing the handbooks and I was I was trafficking the the covers that Salvador Larocca did for those books. Um, yeah, but I was know. also doing a, I was also doing book jacket text and postal stamp <laughs> campaigns and like trade yeah. organizations. So we were in the same circles. It's interesting. Interesting, yeah. Um, yeah, I didn't realize they did have a few. I thought I mean the remote wasn't kind of a thing back then. So, but they did have a few people who were doing it. So uh, it's always interesting to hear you know the, the people like you that were doing it. <laughs> Um, and then sort of 2010 when, you know, when Disney took over, uh, a lot of people got let go and I was one of them and, um, you know, I kind of just whatever, did whatever and, uh, uh, decided to do the art repping thing because my really, my primary function at Marvel was to sort of manage the exclusive guys, exclusive people, sorry. Um, and, uh, make sure they were working, make sure they were happy, making sure they were, um, you know, doing the projects they wanted to do sort of career management human resources, <laughs> listen to them whenever they had a problem, whatever. But um, it was a really great experience. It was a learning experience. Um, and uh, yeah, that was sort of the crux of it. And then, and then after that, I, I went into to start managing, uh, you know, artists. So some some guys that I work, some people that I work with were people that I helped sort of get their foot in the door. Um, and then, you know, and then so I kind of do now what I did for Marvel, just basically helping people get a work. <laughs> That's fantastic, man. It's really good to meet you. Thank you for uh, for sharing your story. Um, Philip, uh, I would love to hear, Philip is drawing as we're talking. I'd love to hear about what you're working on. <laughs> uh, Philip's in the middle of so many pages of Marvel Unlimited, I know, or X-Men Unlimited uh, on, on the Infinity comic. How are, uh, how are things going, man? Uh, they're good. I'm working on uh, X-Men Unlimited 129 today. I'm on the last page of that issue. Uh, issue 121 was just released this morning, which is the first part of this big event, uh, multiple month long story that uh, the Steves, we are affectionately refer to them, but Steve Fox and Steve Orlando are spearheading the X-Men Unlimited Fall of X storyline. Um, and Nick Roche and I are drawing it and we're just kind of kind of bouncing between issues. Um, whoever kind of gets the next issue done first, but it'll run for... Ooh, 20 some odd issues. So, um, which is the kind of one of going to be one of the longest running infinity comic stories they've published to date. So that just launched today. Uh, Nick, uh, Nick's drawing the first two chapters. I did the three issue prologue, which led up to this, uh, which was just released. And yeah, so we are, the, uh, the we've, Christmas Racco story. It's so yeah. fun. You did it such a good <laughs> job, man. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. I've been working at this since September. So it's fun to, to have them start to be coming out and people able to read them. But yeah, by the time this uh, episode is published, we'll be five or six issues into this bigger run and people 
I I have a feeling fans will really really dig it. The the Steves are doing some really great stuff. I uh, when I'm reading this most recent arc, I I had two joy moments for you at weird places. One of I mean you drew a gorgeous storm, but one of them is Wolverine pouring the beer on the grave, and the other is you got to create an entirely new mutant character. It did, so, yeah. Both of those things, I'm just like that's a huge high five. Those are cool feathers in your cap. Oh, thank you. Yeah, and there's some cool stuff. I mean, I, I can't spoil too much, but I got to do a redesign of a bunch of classic X-Men uh, heroes and villains, new costumes that'll be appearing in X-Men Unlimited in the next couple of weeks. And it was it was an absolute blast and highlight. And then to see Nick drawing them on his chapters is really, really cool. I hope to meet Nick. He's he's a, he's a huge talent as well. Uh, repeating dialogue from the show we released today where Isaac and Tate go, you know, Philip, Phil Seavey's really having a moment right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so happy that you're doing so well. Oh, thanks. Um, Ryan, I interview a lot of people and I talk a lot about X-Men continuity. Most diehard X-Men fans love the crazy continuity until it gets too much. They love looking at Mr. Sinister's origins and where it split up. They love trying to stack up where Wolverine was when and which alternate child in whatever summer's timeline Cyclops has with whoever... <laughs> But there's areas where people kind of are are less enthusiastic about, which I it, it's been one of the things that I love doing on my show most is bringing up these other areas of X-Men continuity that people don't think of. Not a lot of people want to look up the Micronauts or Rom's <laughs> Night, right? But there's people <laughs> shit in those places. And the Silver Age is where I've been spending a lot of my time. One of the big ones, uh, people are a little excited about Alpha Flight, but sometimes indifferent. But there is a long-staying history of the Winter Guard slash uh, whatever team name they're using at the time. <laughs> they have a long history. It's pretty robust and it's over a long period of time. And there's a ton of mutant characters with mutant connections. And Russia or the Soviet Union has a lot of history with mutants as well. Most recently explored in Ben Percy's X-Force with Mikhail. But there's a long history of uh, different characters in this space. I would love to hear a little about how your Winter Guard series came to be. And can we please, please celebrate the incredible pencils of Jan Basildua, who is just yes. amazing, amazing. Uh, but you did such amazing. a beautiful job. Tell me your approach to uh, Winter Guard and, and how this came to be for you. Sure. Well, thank you very much. Um, so, the uh, you know, as we all sort of know are savvy to this kind of thing now, uh, when a movie's kind of coming out, they sort of try to put out a book that goes along with it. So Black Widow was on the slate to come out. Um, obviously, that didn't quite happen the way it did. Uh, there was a pandemic and all this other stuff. But uh, Winter Guard was supposed to be like the big Black Widow push uh, because Yelena and uh, Red Guardian Alexi are, are like our main anti-heroes for our book. Um, the fact that so, Red Guardian is a thing right now, like I know. Black Widow's 1960s super soldier husband who died in a plane crash, the fact that that guy's back is nuts. <laughs> so nuts. Uh, it, it was wild. Uh, and yeah, you know, it's funny you bring up uh, like Winter Guard's weird continuity because I, I was certainly aware of a lot of those characters individually. And I was aware that there was a team called the Winter Guard, but it wasn't really until... Uh, um Jason Aaron brought them back in that in that Avengers relaunch a little while before they they brought me on to do the series that I was like really deep diving on them. Um and so like obviously like you said like Soviet Union's history with with X-Men and all that stuff. There are there are lots of mutants even the current team in in the Krakoa era. Um the teams we had uh you know Vanguard uh is Darkstar's twin brother and they're both mutants. Uh yeah. Vanguard's mutant power is that he can sort of like augment momentum and like energy. 
Um, so we gave him like this little boomerang thing and he could like, he can use it to fly and stuff. Um, and then his twin sister, um, Darkstar, I, I see a lot of people call her like Russian Captain Marvel, um, <laughs> which, which, which I do think is fair. Like if you look at her power set and how she's written, but what I love about Darkstar is that she has, she has one of those mutant abilities that like, doesn't make sense as a mutant ability where it's like her mutant ability is the power to access the dark force. Oh. <laughs> and I'm like. Yeah. <laughs> her mutant ability is that is is magic and it's like yeah obviously there's there's more to it than that but i it was is, really it, really well, into it, that it is interesting because there do seem to be a subset of mutant powers that right. are specifically related to one element or one location in a weird way moira mctaggart has this because her power is directly related to like the powers that create the multiverse if she dies reality resets right there's right. certain characters that can access other realms. Magic is Limbo, and Dark Star mm -hmm. is the Dark Force dimension. And I don't know how much of this was set up or established beforehand, but by coincidence, um, so like Chernobog, the Slavic god of like blood and destruction and whatever, is, is also on on the team. And everyone's and like, who? In, <laughs> oh, uh, Chernobog and Dark Star are my two favorite characters in this book. Uh, and I understand that that's uh, annoying to people who wanted a Black Widow book. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I like these weirdos. Um, and uh, I Chernobog shows up in some Greg Pak Hulk um and some thor and stuff and in one of the random greg pack or not greg pack hulk in like a random issue like an elseworlds not elseworlds but you know what i mean uh like a random alternate timeline thing it, it's like mentioned offhand that oh chernobog his domain is the dark force and i was like oh guys guys we got a team romance right here uh and so i i i wrote four issues um it was a blast i loved every second of it um, I totally derailed the third issue to have Dracula show up. Um, and that actually, I was worked out in my favor because Ben Percy was also doing all the vampire stuff with X-Men as well with Wolverine at the time. Um, and then I was like, Hey, I want to write like a background slow burn team romance between R Russian Captain Marvel and the Slavic God of blood sacrifice and destruction <laughs> because they're connected to the same power. And I, I want to do this thing where like he admires her. Uh, even though he's a monster and a bad guy. Um, I, I like, I like, I like monster romances. Uh, what was it like working with Jen? Oh my gosh. She is incredible. Um, and we tried some crazy stuff. Like she, I know this was her first, se second mini. Um, she had only done like single issues and, and one-offs and stuff like that. And she from the jump was like, raring to go um we did some we i really wanted to try like playing with layouts and she was always really game was always like oh can we like recreate like a cctv feed here can we um can we do a double page spread that is evocative of the scene in francis ford coppola's dracula where the train moves across the map and there's like the the photo projection of the old-timey train and like all stuff like that i was like throwing at her she's really 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 good about that kind of stuff and her action is like second to none uh so uh you're you identify as heterosexual correct sure uh fuck mary kill white widow red widow dark star interesting um red widow is sufficiently mean and evil so fuck red widow love that um <laughs> uh white widow i'm gonna go ahead and say mary uh, because Yelena is also really mean, but she's a good guy in general. 
Uh, and then, yeah, I guess Black, Black Kill. I don't want to choose this. Uh, Dark Star Kill, I don't want to kill Dark Star. Uh, but, but she's like, you know, she's the hero. And, and when I wrote her in the team, I was like, she's our, she's our, our heart of the team. She's our, like, our goodest guy. Um, and, like, is the only one, like, that book is a spy book. And it was all espionage stuff. And I wrote Vanguard a little bit, too. Uh, but her especially, I was like, she is just trying to be a superhero in a superhero world doing superhero stuff. And we have to throw in all this spy crap and she hates it. Um, so I guess I would I would very guiltily kill her. <laughs> Ryan Katie likes mean girls is what I'm hearing. It's a stone mm-hmm. cold fact. I romance Lazel in, ba- in Baldur's Gate 3. It's all you need to know about me. Uh, uh, speaking of X-Men adjacent, X-Men fans are fiercely uh, defensive of their characters, but they rarely follow them anywhere else. They love the Phoenix Force in the X-Men. They don't like it in the Avengers so much, for example. Uh, There are events that involve uh, X-Men characters that people don't often follow. And one of them recently was the relaunch of the Heroes Reborn universe. Uh, My reaction to this as a fan was, why? (laughs) But Jason Aaron was doing a lot of crazy shit in the Avengers. And they relaunched a whole place for the Squadron Supreme to kind of shine, although they're going by different names. Uh, There were a number of one-shots that came out during this, which again, I was initially like, why? But a number of them are pretty okay. Uh, One of them is written by Ryan Cady. It is easy, I think, for writers when they're doing an issue like this in an alternate reality. You can do the what-if thing, but just make characters die really horribly. I'm always really (laughs) impressed with writers who take these opportunities to give a lot of depth and story to characters that we may never see again. Uh, You wrote an absolute tragedy in your Hyperion and the Imperial Guard story. Oh, thank you. Thank you. That's a high compliment. It's so sad because Neutron and Flashfire finding their little love connection and then the Brood is there and Deathbird is there and there's a lot of X-Men shit and it's a great read. And again, Michelle Bandini, just amazing. Uh, tell us a little bit about this story. Um, this was, this is a, bla- honestly, thank you for bringing this up. This is like one of my favorite, this is probably my favorite Marvel thing I've ever worked on. Um, it's it's easily one of my favorite superhero things I've done. Um, and you know, like you said, that was Heroes Reborn was coming back. Um, they had done a few of these one shots. They were just trying to flesh out what that timeline would look like. And and me and Will Moss got on the phone. He's the editor on that. And we were just sort of like talking about the broad strokes of the story of like, OK, in this timeline, uh, you know, Hyperion is a young hero. We're kind of like riffing on DC's, uh, you know, Legion of Superheroes sort of thing and trying to playing with like young Superboy and stuff. Um, and like riffing on that in complicated ways. And so it was like young Hyperion, you know, training with the Shi'ar Imperial Guard and all this stuff. And so we tried to really recreate what those dynamics are like in a team book. And then we were, the more we were talking about, the more we were like, well, why, wait, why are we like limiting ourselves to this within the text of the story? If this whole Heroes Reborn thing is an alternate timeline, wouldn't this book be on like issue 150? And we just sort of started like, me, me and Will <laughs> derailed and started talking about what this alternate universe of marvel comics timeline publishing would look like and so we were like fuck it let's let's make this issue this isn't like hyperion and the imperial guard number one this is hyperion and the imperial guard number 151 the last issue of an ongoing series that's been running since 1989 and i'm ending it killing them all off uh, except for Hyperion, uh, and using it to relaunch my new Star Jammers 1992 series. This is kind uh, of this is kind of the 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 thing they did back when uh, there was the Amalgam Universe, like DC versus yes. Marvel, and like Legends of the Dark Claw. They'd like treat it was like it was like issue number 100 and to be continued, and like reference all these crazy comic books that never existed. It's fun. It's a fun approach. 
it's such a blast to get to do something like that. And, you know, obviously, like, it's the opposite of your usual event thing where you're like, okay, I have to hit these metrics and do these things. Make sure there's side include, which is like a fun challenge. I actually really, I like the challenge of event books where it's like, you have to include this stupid jerk that nobody likes and he has to be here doing this. And I'm like, great, let's go. Um, but that this was so the opposite where it's like, oh man, what could we, oh, and then this guy could be here. Oh, and then this could be doing like this. And well, she has to say this because in our timeline, she wouldn't be here, you know, uh, and, and all, all that stuff. So that was really a blast and really diving into the meta, like going above and beyond the the meta narrative at all. And I know we, we got some people to write like letters to the editor. Uh, I think Phil wrote one. We had Teeny Howard write one, Chris Robinson. We had people write like, oh man, this is such like typical, like this is such bullshit and you're cashing in and like nobody cares about the Summers family. Mutants are boring. Like, you know, uh, so I don't know. It, it, it was it was really fun. I'm really proud of that issue. Um, and and I, really I wish we got great. to do more stuff like that. And Neutron, by the way, being the canonically gay member of the yes. Imperial Guard, we got a brief moment in Steve Orlando's Marauders that I think people didn't even pay attention to where Somnus from the Marauders yes. then spends a night with Neutron. And in his dreams, they live a whole life together. So he always comes oh. out of these with like new life experiences. But Somnus and Neutron fucked. So that was that was a fun moment. Well, Neutron <laughs> just gets it in, you know, and I, you know, I like he's an opportunist it's not that he's without feeling you know but he's just always ready for the next thing he's got a black hole inside him so he's got to he's got to be practical and find love where he can and i appreciate that about him and when it comes to gay sex imagine what you can do with a black hole oh sorry everyone <laughs> <laughs> it's actually not limiting it's the opposite uh <laughs> he's, a very, he's a very layered character he's a very layered character <laughs> yes yeah there's there's always more to explore with these characters i love the imperial guard i'm weirdly fond of hussar the like hairy whip lady with like the receding hairline and the long plummeting blonde hair. There's a lot of these characters that are really fun. Yeah. Uh, do any of you have questions for each other before we start to shift gears a little bit? Yeah, I think uh, I, I myself as well as listeners would probably like to know as a, a manager of talent and artist, Chris, what are some <laughs> of the things that you do like responsibilities and uh, services you provide. And, and there aren't too many people in the comic sphere who do that type of thing. So why don't you talk a little bit about that if that's okay? Yeah, of course. Uh, I mean, so basically like the, the bare bones is, uh, you know, finding work. So I reach out to anybody who hires artists um, and say, hey, I have, I have whatever, 10 artists or here's so-and-so's artwork. Um, here's his horror artwork, horror artwork. Here's his sci-fi stuff. And, you know, I put together portfolios and try to target if I like, I know a lot of editors, so like I'll target like a specific editor with the characters, at least the sort of genre that they work on, and say, "Hey, so and so is available. Here's his interiors, or here's their cover. Here, there's here's their cover work. Here's their color work. You know, whatever it is, and just say, you know, and then sort of just make that connection, basically. Um, and then obviously, I know people because I worked at Marvel, and a lot of editors left Marvel and went to other places. Um, you know, it's a hustle. Um, <laughs> I'm not making a ton of money yet, but um, you know, I'm working on it and. Uh, it's just sort of making that connection. And then sort of on the other side, uh, you know, I'm just sort of working with them, managing their expectations, talking about rates, um, you know, just giving them advice on, on, I mean, since I worked for Marvel and I was on that side of the, the corporate side, I kind of know how things work on that side. So I just kind of like, just you, you don't want to do these kind of things. You want to do this, you know, like just sort of you know, the little, like just little things that I experienced when I was there and just do's and don'ts kind of things. Um, but it's basically career management and just helping them build their portfolio, making the connections, giving them the right sort of uh, guidance in terms of work habits and making sure they're communicating and, and just all these little things that people don't really tell you, uh, you know, when you're an artist, I mean, I primarily focus on artists. They yeah. don't tell you as 
need to sort of be aware of. You know, this is, you know, it's not, you can't take a million years to do a book. You know, you got <laughs> to hit deadlines. You got to, you got to, you got to meet the schedules and not just, you know, not just one deadline, but like, if you're going to be doing four issues, you got to like, look ahead. Like it's four issues. You got to meet these deadlines. If you don't meet this first deadline, then your second deadline is going to be, you know, fucked up. And so th- th- just that kind of stuff is sort of the, the, um, the unknowns, I guess, <laughs> for people yeah. that are new. Yeah. And it, it, yeah. Do you find yourself working primarily with newer talent or is it kind of a mix of, of new and established? And it's, yeah, it's a, it's a little bit of a mix. Uh, cause I, I feel like there's, there's people, there are people out there that are amazing that just aren't getting work. And it's not because people don't know, it's, it's not because they're good or they haven't been in the business, but like there's a whole new crop of editors and people don't know everybody that's out there. So, um, there's that. And then there's just people that just don't know how, you know, it, it's hard to break in. I don't know how you broke in. Um, but, uh, it's just hard to get that first thing. I mean, I think it's probably a little bit easier now because, of social media, like people, like I know there's a lot of editors on social media scouring, you know, scouring artists and looking for new talents. Um, but it's still hard to break in. So, um, uh, you know, just sort of, I don't know, just being that that sort of, you know, contact person who who can at least help. I, I mean, I don't, I can't guarantee work all the time, but I try my best, you know. And it's it's it helps having somebody on your side that has a little bit of knowledge. Of oh, that's awesome. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Any other questions for each other? Yeah, I mean, I mean, Chris, do you find that like, I mean, do you do you find you're saying that you find that it's like things are a little easier now in social media, but do you do you find that like paradoxically that makes you like more important? You know, like <laughs> like you were you were saying that, and I was like, gosh, I, I think it would be like the opposite. I'm like, Chris probably has like a bigger job to do, and it's like I guess, it's more like running around. <laughs> I mean, I guess I say easy, like it's e- it's it's easier to like sort of at least get your work seen. Mm. Uh, may not be easier to get the actual work. <laughs> but that being said, you know, I mean, I know a lot more editors have this sort of, I guess it's easier for editors because they can go out there and pick and choose, you know, a sure. much more, a lot easier than they were able to in the past. And, you know, and, I, and I'm glad there's a whole new, it's like a younger crop of editors. So art styles have changed, you know, art, the sort of art that companies are using has changed. It's kind of, it's a little bit more broad, which is cool. Um, so, I mean, there's definitely, there's definitely ups and downs to the current state of, you know, the art in comics. <laughs> We've had some um, conversations on my show about how it's never e- been easier to get your stuff out there, but there's also never been more competition. And often it still comes down to who you know and what you've worked on, you know? There's, there's absolutely also that. Like, it's, 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 easy, it's easier to get your work out there, but then on the, on the alternative side, there is more competition. Everybody from around the world can literally put their work on Instagram and people can see it. So, yeah, it's that much harder, too. Okay, yes. so before we begin our issue review today, we got to take the conversation to three kind of weird places, and then we'll just see where the conversation right. takes us. First, let me provide a quick recap. In the, We're going to be uh, reviewing the end of the Amazing Adventures run. Uh, on the day we're recording this, which is on uh, January 8th, I released my interview with Steve Englehart at the latter half of the episode, where we talk about his whole run on Amazing Adventures, covering from his perspective some of the content we'll be discussing here. But it was a great honor to talk to him about this work that he wrote 50 years ago, which is amazing to contemplate. So a quick recap, uh, Beast left the X-Men, took a job at the Brand Corporation, which is a thinly veiled parody of the real-life Rand Corporation. He turned himself into a monster by drinking a potion that he created. He didn't even need to in the first place. He's had all sorts of antics and adventures, but recently his old girlfriend Vera Cantor, who I love, found him and said she needs his help to save the world, but she won't tell him why. And frankly, we don't figure it out for a few years, uh, but it's all about the mimic. Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> who I did a long Cerebra episode on once, and we talk about these stories. Anyway, uh, so now they're off on a mysterious mission to help Vera. Meanwhile, the Juggernaut has been trapped in the Crimson Cosmos for a while, or in some other dimension that Eternity tossed him into. This issue today is probably Juggernaut's weirdest, and that's saying something because he's had some real weird stories, but he gets holy grailed in this issue. <laughs> so we're going to talk about that in a little while. Um, by the way, I had an episode on that issue of Doctor Strange 182 with Peter Sanderson. That's really fun. Uh, so we're going to open our conversation. First place we need to take this. Uh, who was baffled by this idea of the Rutland, Vermont Halloween parade? Uh, <laughs> is this something you knew about before today's issue? This is a weird piece of comic book history. Tell me your thoughts on this parade. I mean, I had to go to Wikipedia to figure yeah. out what was going on and to figure out who, uh, the, is it Tom Fagan? Is that his, uh, his name? Yep, yep. Yeah, who he was and how he related to stuff. Yeah. Uh, I just thought, yeah. it was, thought it was some, you know, just Rutland, whoever Rutland is, like, just like every town has a parade. So, like, why not Rutland having a whole <laughs> Yeah, same. Like, the first two pages, I was like, huh, I guess, like, were people going to Rutland a lot? Like, I don't, I'm, I'm kind of East Coast <laughs> ignorant sometimes. So, I'm like, I don't know. But then I got to like page three and I'm like, okay, well, like, Okay, Len Wein is here, so clearly, yeah. like, this is something I've got to Google. Uh, and like Phil, I was like, oh, okay, yep. that's what's going and, on. And Glennis Oliver too, right? From yeah, Vermont. yes, Const all over the all over the book. She's yes. like part of the plot. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yes. Uh, she works on the book, and she's in the plot. We're going to talk about her. So I'll give you the quick the quick history. And again, I got to talk to Steve about this a little bit. Starting in 1960, Rutland, Vermont, Vermont started hosting a Halloween parade, but it kind of became a big giant cosplay event because its founder Tom Fagan would dress like Batman. There just became this thing where everybody would go. It was a safe space to nerd out and dress like superheroes. Uh, Tom lived from 1932 to 2008. Uh, he wrote into the books often, and he made friends with some. Of the writers and editors because he invited them to the parade and some of them came and then it became like this annual event and then they started using this parade in various comic books because it was just a fun thing to do so the first time this parade shows up in a book is in detective comics number 327 in 1963 and then again in avengers number 88 in 1971 there's a doctor strange story that kind of takes place there that's loosely referenced in our issue today uh, then Steve and some of his friends decided to feature each other. So it's sort of like a crossover between the books. We've got Steve Englehart, Jerry Conway, Len Wein, and Glennis Wein, who later is Glennis Oliver, uh, who even goes by a different name now. But uh, but she was married to Len Wein at the time. And they are like carpooling to Rutland and they have a series of misadventures uh, in this story where it begins and then it continues into Justice League of America number 103 and then in Thor number 207 and the only through line is like Steve keeps having problems with his car between the three issues there's not a lot of other things to talk about they do uh, they, we do briefly see Roy and Jean Thomas in this issue as well and there's a reference to Mike Friedrich who I've had on the show uh, by the way, the Rutland Parade has continued to appear. It's also, for example, in Generation X number 22. So go look that up if you would like more. Tell me your thoughts on this weird piece of history and what it was like to see the creators in the book today. Is it still going on? Like, does yeah, it happen it's still, still? It's still happening. You can, I mean, I've never been, but I looked it up on the website and they were they were setting up the parade for 2023 on the website. What? Oh. Okay, why don't we go to this? We should all go. Why are we not that, at this? Why are we not amazing. all at this? every year <laughs> let's make it happen again let's bring it back rutland <laughs> let's go 
Yeah, no, we've talked a little bit about like Sean Howe and his incredible book on kind of the history of Marvel comics. And it, I, I was kind of flashing back to a lot of that era in the book. I think he spends a, a lot of time kind of on the 70s uh, era and the editors and kind of just the culture of Marvel. And I really kind of love that everyone was not only was everyone dating and married to each other, but there was just like this, let's just go have fun and, you know, put our own weird experiences into books. We're getting into like Steve Gerber territory and all sorts of stuff where like, it was just not the type of books that they had been producing or would produce ever again. It was really a unique time in Marvel history. Um, I get to interview Sean Howe soon. I'm so excited, but he wrote that incredible book about the history of Marvel comics. Uh, it's great. We'll talk more about that on my show in a few weeks. Uh, well, a few months. He's coming on soon, everybody. We'll be here soon. Uh, and he's going to be paired with Anthony Oliveira, which is a delicious combination. I can't wait for that. <laughs> okay, second weird place we need to take this conversation. I'm going to do a little performance piece for all of you. Uh, so patient with me. Uh, I did this for my children and it was effective. We'll see how well it goes now. This is a poem written by James Whitcomb Riley in 1885. My accents always come out as Irish. I know that. So please nobody make fun of me. <laughs> Little orphan Danny's come to our house to stay and wash the cups and saucers up and brush the crumbs away and shoo the chickens off the porch and dust the hearth and sweep and make the fire and bake the bread and earn her board and keep. And all us other children, when the supper things is done, we set about the kitchen fire and has the mostest fun a listening to the witch tales that Annie tells about. And the goblins will get you if you don't watch out. Once they was a little boy, wouldn't say his prayers. And when he went to bed at night away upstairs, his mammy heard him holler and his daddy heard him bawl. And when they turned the kivers down, he wasn't there at all. And they seeked him in the rafter room and cubby hole and press and seeked him up the chimbley flue and everywheres, I guess. But all they ever found was this his pants and roundabout and the goblins will get you if you don't watch out. And one time a little girl had always laugh and grin and make fun of everyone and all her blood and kin. And once when they was company and old folks was there, she mocked them and she shocked them and she said she didn't care. And this, as she kicked her heels and turned to run and hide, they was two great big black things a-standin' by her side, and they snatched her through the ceiling for she knowed what she's about. And the goblins will get you if you don't watch out. <laughs> and little orphan Danny says, when the blaze is blue and the lamp wick sputters and the wind goes woo, and you hear the crickets quit and the moon is gray, and the lightning bugs is dew is all squenched away, you better mind your parents and your teachers fond and dear and cherish them that loves you and dry the orphan's tear and help the poor and needy ones that clusters all about or the goblins will get you if you don't watch out. So there's a little piece for you. Do you guys have any idea what the connection between this and today's issue is? The word goblin? <laughs> the title of today's issue is and the juggernaut will get you if you don't watch uh out. Oh, okay, okay. I love when writers use literary reference. Uh, this is a <laughs> creepy poem from the late 1800s that later became the inspiration for the Little Orphan Annie comic and huh. for the Raggedy Ann toy line and cartoons. Oh, weird. So uh, go look that up if you're interested. I hope that was uh, okay to be indulgent <laughs> enough to perform this silly poem. But it's it's kind Great. of a fun piece of uh, trivia here. Cool. Uh, any comments? Uh well, like in that exact vein, I love that. Like that's the title of the story, but like that, 
that this book gets like i don't know you get to have so many more titles back then you get to have like your tagline on the cover one must die in the dark of halloween and right. then you get to have stanley presenting the bludgeoning beast like pitch your adjective and then you get to have your crazy literary reference for the title of the story <laughs> like i'm like oh we're feasting <laughs> Okay, so today's issue, and this is the third place, is from January 1973. Steve Englehart is writing, William Robert Brown, often just called Bob Brown, and Maurice Severin uh, does some of the caricature work, but he's the primary penciler. Uh, Frank McLaughlin is on inks, Glennis Ween on colors, uh, Charlotte Jeter on letters, and Roy Thomas on edits. And I like to do a brief bio whenever we're introducing a new creator to the show, and this blurb is several new creators. So I'm going to go through this really quickly and see if you guys have comments. Um, Bob Brown lived from 1915 to 1977. He was a World War II veteran and a contemporary of Jack Kirby and others. He worked on a bunch of books at Marvel and DC. Uh, he did have a piece published in X-Men number 106 in 1977, just before he died. Uh, Marie Severin is just a damn legend, one of my all-time favorite comic book heroes. She lived from 1929 to 2018. I got to talk to Linda Fight about her a little bit, if you go back to that interview. She was one of the few women making it as an artist in the Golden and Silver Age of comics, and she did work on Iron Man and Daredevil, the Submariner, the Hulk, the Cat, uh, and even Conan the Barbarian, uh, simply gorgeous. She's also the designer of Spider-Woman's first costume, and she co-created several characters like Howard the Duck. Uh, she worked on Muppet Babies and Coneheads and just has this long, crazy career, and uh, I love her. In the X-Men world, she did color the Heroes for Hope one-shot, and she was also a penciler on one issue of The Fallen Angels. So not a lot of X-Men connections, but there are a couple. Uh, third, Frank McLaughlin worked on a bunch of books like Judo Master and Gil Thorpe and Brenda Starr during his life. He lived from 1935 to 2020, and he worked on a handful of Marvel books in the 1970s. And then lastly, a name much more familiar to X-Men fans is Glennis Oliver, uh, who is credited as Glennis Ween in this issue. She is a legendary colorist who worked on dozens and dozens of books in the Claremont era, from Wolverine and New Mutants to Hulk and Amazing Spider-Man and X-Men. She is 74 years old and still out there, but my perception is she's a very private person. Uh, lastly, Charlotte Jetter lived from 1914 to 1990 and worked as a letterer for a lot of books in the 60s and 70s, but I just wasn't able to find a lot about her other than she was German. Uh, any comments on these quick creator bio bios? Thank you all for being patient with this. I mean, I have to, um, I really appreciate the fact that they brought in <clears throat> Marie to do the caricature stuff because just because you can draw books doesn't mean you can necessarily draw likenesses or characters very well. And I can appreciate it was maybe a Roy Thomas call to be like, let's bring in an artist who can do these likenesses really well just to help Bob out. <laughs> the, uh, the care put into these stories is interesting because the creators are representing each other. It becomes the Marvel bullpen inside, inside joke. Marvel Comics is an entity that does exist in the Marvel Universe, and the Marvel creators are often the people. So it's almost the premise that the superheroes are having the adventures and then reporting them to the Marvel Comics professionals, who then publish those adventures as the books that we are reading. And that's kind of the premise they use often. Stanley and Jack Kirby and these other creators show up often. Chris Claremont's in a bunch of books. Uh, it's very common to name businesses after other writers. Like, look, it's the CV Dry Cleaners and the Katie Coffee Shop over here, right? You see Brevort everything in the comics all the time. Uh, do you guys have any thoughts on this idea of Marvel Comics as an in-Marvel Universe entity? 
No, I was just going to say that I love her name is Charlotte Jetter and she was a letterer. Uh, <laughs> I like that rhymes. <laughs> oh, you know, I do find it. It's, it's again, also fun to just c- compare and contrast the different time periods and kind of what is a little bit more relaxed versus what is uh, more serious. I know that uh, doing things like likenesses or names or other things like that, even in the background is very, very much, uh, Marvel does not want you to do that for legal reasons. And it totally makes sense. But back then, yeah, like Chris Claremont had tons of, but a couple of NPR journalists he made as main characters in his run and things like that, that nowadays you would have to Manoli Weatherall, just such a great name. Yeah, so like you would have to get like like uh, what was it likeness rights, all sorts of stuff. They would have to legally sign off to be allowed to do such. It just doesn't happen that way anymore. I just like the fact that there was a few women working in comics back then for a long time, and people today, you know, like there's that toxic fan base of like, oh, women in comics. Like women have been a part of comics, um, and it's just nice to sort of you know, it's nice that people like you are sort of you know researching them and sort of letting people know about it. <laughs> Yeah. Now, Amazing Adventures number 16 was canceled after this issue. Well, the Beast story was canceled. There is one issue after this, we'll talk about it at the end, that's kind of a reprint of the Beast's origin, and then it launches into the Killraven comics. Killraven's a character a lot of people remember, but we're not going to spend more time in Amazing Adventures after this issue. Steve uh, did not get to wrap up a lot of his plot lines, which we will also see. All the stuff with Linda and Brand and everything going on has uh, <laughs> not gone very well. Uh, are you guys familiar with this eras of, of Beast's history? Is the are these comics you have read before? I haven't read any of these before, so it's kind of fun to see where Blue Beast started. Yeah, it's all new to me. Uh, it's 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 exciting. He's it's great how much he is still a hundred percent Beast from the jump. <laughs> uh, he, Hank McCoy is being Hank McCoy. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I think I, I think I only read the like the actual like the issue where he gets drinks the potion and transforms. But I never read this this particular issue until now. I've got one episode on each one if you're interested. We have a pretty good time on this series. The, the show has been a joy to make this year. Uh, Philip, if you'll pull the cover up, I'd love to hear a description uh, from you on this cover. <laughs> it's crazy. But I'll ask everyone while you're doing that. Are you guys Juggernaut fans? Yes. Huge Juggernaut fan. I've, I've pitched Juggernaut like three times. <laughs> <laughs> what do you love about Juggernaut, Ryan? Uh, I love that he is like an everyman big he's a goon he's literally just a goon he could be like any random henchman but instead he's the chosen of a lovecraftian deity and i think that's really special uh and then also that he is just like tangled up in the x-men and like on a meta level that they're always like he's not a mutant his powers have nothing to do with mutants he doesn't know anything about mutants well there's some stuff related to mutants a little bit sometimes that you know like i i just love that on a meta level as well how they like incorporate him a lot uh but but mainly i'm just the idea that like a random henchman, basically, that type of person could be an eldritch entity's avatar upon the world. Uh, I love that a lot. There's a Fabian Nicieza story in X-Men Forever where there's a group of X-Men that are t- uh, uh, being sent back in time by the stranger and Frosh. It's a whole thing. Of course, as one does. They're each recruited by the stranger because they represent one specific thing, uh, according to mutant kind. And Juggernaut re- represents like being jealous of mutants. This <laughs> 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 hilarious. <laughs> uh, Chris, are you a Juggernaut fan? Uh, I mean, I yeah, I mean, to an extent, I guess. I mean, I, I just like the, the you know what Ryan just said about how like some deity would choose him. But if you think about it, like the deities are very primal, sort of power hungry kind of beings. So. Uh, to sort of pick this sort of bully type character kind of makes sense to me. But I also, I, I liked how, I don't know if it was original story, like how 
Claremont incorporated him into being Charles's stepbrother and sort of that little rivalry that they had was, I always found that kind of interesting and sort of, you know, they try to make sense of why the, the, the entanglement with the X-Men was kind of a, an ongoing thing. Um, I, yeah, I, I think it's an interesting character. I don't know why it's Kane Marco, like knowing who he is and what he, what his history is. I don't know why it's him that has the power of Sidorak, but it's kind of funny. <laughs> it's fantastic. There's one story by Mike Carey that says Sidorak actually wanted Xavier, but Marco landed there on accident, which is right. amazing as yeah. well. Mm. Uh, Philip, do you have any thoughts on Juggernaut? Um, <clears throat> I don't know if I have anything particularly like revelatory. Um, I think it's fun to see this Juggernaut appearance early on. Kind of like with a lot of things in X-Men, the version that we know them at now isn't really introduced yeah. in the comics until kind of the Claremont era. So like when Juggernaut shows up with Black Tom in the Phoenix Saga, like that's the mm -hmm. Juggernaut that like you know right. I knew from cartoons and comics and other things like that. So to see him early on uh in that this the his appearance before that time it, it's fun to just be like it's, it's so wacky how he's thrown in and he's been with eternity and straight we'll get into it in a second but i was like this is just like what is juggernaut doing involved in any of this stuff it's insane juggernaut and black tom is still a few years away but canonically this he's only about three issues away from that there's a yeah. couple more appearances of juggernaut and then claremont comes in and he becomes the x-men mainstay that we love yeah. Uh, Philip, tell us about the cover of Amazing Adventure 16. Sure. So the like main focal point of the cover is Juggernaut and Beast fighting. Juggernaut is holding Beast by the throat. They are standing on top of a uh, roof of a building, a home. Juggernaut's got the Beast by the neck, kind of pushing him backwards with his fist raised to punch him. He says, your strength could never match uh, the Juggernaut. You were doomed from the start. And below on the ground, you have Vision, Iron Man, Thor, Invisible Woman, Spider-Man, and Captain America. And the like Ryan pointed out, of the many titles on this book, the cover says, one must die in the dark of Halloween. Amazing. Uh, and those actually aren't the heroes. They're like <laughs> cosplayers from the parade dressed yep. as heroes. <laughs> but we would so know smart. that. Yeah, yeah. On the, uh, the, the newsstand, it'd be like, oh my gosh, the Avengers and Spider-Man are in this random issue. <laughs> also, it uh, it looks like Juggernaut has a little pencil mustache on this cover, which is just adorable. <laughs> it's just a cute look for him. I think we, next time, if I ever get a chance to draw Juggernaut, I'm going to put a pencil mustache on it and see if anyone notices. Kane, Kane can rock a beard and mustache. We've seen it before. Uh, okay, if we open this book up, I'm going to cover the first few pages kind of quickly. We see a very lumbering blue beast running across the road, scaring a car full of Marvel Comics staffers, including Steve and Len and Glennis and Jerry. Uh, Bob Brown's Beast looks kind of like a werewolf on page one, but as you flip to page two, the proportions are weird. Beast kind of looks like a horse, if I'm honest, in that image. It's a very strange <laughs> position. Do you guys have thoughts on uh, the way Bob Brown draws the beast? You know, I love that first page, that opening splash. And I don't know, was this the same artist who was drawing the first uh, issue of Beast Turning Blue that you were talking no, to with Spencer no, and Jordan? Okay, Not the same. Mm -hmm. Okay, I feel it's similar, though. Like, the moments that work the best for me in this issue are the little bit more horror-tinged uh, moments. And the more straightforward superhero stuff does not work as well for me artistically. But I love, like, that creepy, hunched-forward werewolf look on that splash. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, so, oh, please. In on page one of panel two, um, they're like looking at, at Beast and they're like, what in the world was that? And uh, Len Wein says, I don't know, some kind of an animal man or Omarian or what the hell yeah. is an Omarian, guys? I Googled yeah. 
and it's, <laughs> it recommended me like followers of a Persian mathematician from like 1100. And I'm yeah. like, I also I googled, that's it. <laughs> I also googled this and couldn't figure it out. I literally emailed Steve Engelhart and I said, "What does this mean?" But I haven't heard back yet. I'll <laughs> oh, let you know when nice. I hear back because I don't know what that line of dialogue means. <laughs> I would love to know. Let us know when you know, please. <laughs> yeah, there's no uh, there's no Google reference, which is insane. Uh, okay, so they're all kind of confused. There's a moment when they notice the beast where Glennis says, wow, Len, for a second, I knew I knew how Faye Ray must have felt. Oh. Faye Ray, of course, is the actress that King, King Kong carried up the Empire State Building. There's a fascinating documentary about Faye Ray. If you haven't seen it, it's really interesting. Uh, it turns out they're having car problems, but they agree to give a ride to Hank and Vera. So Hank was in his beast form, and then he went back to his clothes in the woods and put them on with his latex mask and gloves. And nobody's fucking noticing that he's a hairy man with a latex mask over his face, and I still can't explain it. It drives me nuts because it's this thing that keeps happening. So as they're driving away, there's very little room in the car because Hank's shoulders are giant. Uh, but Juggernaut falls out of a random portal in the sky and into the road. And I, when I was really reading this yesterday, I laughed out. He goes, I'm I'm back, back on Earth. I'm free. That stinking cosmos eternity tossed me into. Do you hear me, Earth? The Juggernaut is back. Nothing can stop the Juggernaut. Not physical <laughs> objects, not mystical might, not even time. Just like my namesake, I keep moving till I get what I want. And all I want is revenge. Revenge on my old enemies. But then a portal just sucks him back up. In the <laughs> He's like, no. <laughs> The, the I, I, fact I, I, that he lands on Earth and gives a speech to no one about how great he is, and then just gets sucked back into the sky, is amazing. I, I also like how he looks like the Blob in the Juggernaut costume. He does. <laughs> this is Juggernaut's like I'm a frog, but also a potato look that kind of matched his Silver Age. Uh, he's he's kind of lumpy in this appearance. Uh, I like him big and strong, like he gets when the X Men later. Yeah. Um, we learned through a series of flashbacks that there was that adventure with Doctor Strange and Eternity, and now there's something kind of wonky happening. The the like aura of his dimension mixed with like Beast being present during Halloween at Rutland has formed some sort of mystical connection that's opened a portal that's allowed him to land on Earth. This is literally the logic presented for this plot line. I'm baffled yes. by it. Do we have any comments? I mean, I it's just thought bad. it's bad. Yeah, I thought it was weird. Like, if the beast is not supernatural; he's a mutant. And then his his switching, his becoming blue was a chem was a scientific, a chemical thing. So I'm not sure how they tie the, that that whole thing of the juggernaut being in tune magically, which allowed him to sort of land and rush. <laughs> and it also talks about that time that like the cult of Dormammu tried to sacrifice Doctor Strange in this area. Yes. Like, there's something yes. just weird, Mumbo. Were you guys surprised by the flashback to Doctor Strange with the blue mask on? Uh, do you guys know this look? It's his uh, Silver Age blue mask look. I don't know that look. That look surprised me. I I knew about this because I I again I'd read about the X Men thirty three thing. Uh, like, and I when he fought, after that when he fought Doctor Strange, I'd read about that for a Juggernaut pitch I did. So I was like, yeah, of course he's tangled with Doctor Strange. But I assumed I'm like, is that like evil Doctor Strange? You can uh, you can pass this question, but what was your Juggernaut pitch? Um. I don't know. It's like always annoying to talk about this stuff. But ba basically, it was like him. It was sort of like reconciling with like, it was like little guy, big powers. And it was him working with like an old woman who was like a sorceress of, of Sidorak, who was like, you're going to be, we're going to work this thing, dog. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, I won't say anymore. Uh, completely understood. Thank you. Uh, Chris, do you want to talk about the next section of the book? If you would prefer me to take this, I'm happy to. Uh, yeah, if you don't mind. I mean, I just wanted to say something about how like, 
how he gets let out of the portal, but then he gets sucked back into another portal like immediately after he makes a speech. So it was just like he was let out of the portal to make a speech and then gets sucked back into another portal. Like is that is that am I seeing? It's yeah, so he's like he's like materializing on Earth and then getting pulled away and then materializing, getting pulled away. And each time it's a little bit longer. And it seems like he has to kill the beast or he'll be aged into a withered old man and then sucked back into the portal. This is a weird spell. I don't know what happened here, but that's 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 Juggernaut's story here. <laughs> like he yeah. has to smash the beast, or he doesn't get to stay on Earth. Right. And then, like the pages that I was looking at, uh, like we get to know a little bit about the the little group of Marvel people that are in Rutland and um, sort of the beast interacting with them. Um, but yeah, uh, and then I guess this is the first time that Beast and Juggernaut actually tank tussle a little bit. Um, there's a there's kind of... a scene between Beast and Vera Cantor. Vera is in her like librarian finest look, like gorgeous yes, yeah. little pink dress with her little bob and her spectacles. Uh, yes. Are you guys Vera Cantor fans, or do you know even know who the hell I'm talking about? <laughs> I, I, I didn't until I read this. I don't remember. Yeah, I, I learned about it from this this issue as well. <laughs> Sarah Sarah Century and I have an uh, epic episode on Vera Cantor uh, uh, posted on this channel. If you would ever like to listen, we love have... her very much. I have a question. Does she know that he's blue and furry? Or does no, just... no. Oh. Uh, although Angel found out on the last issue and was surprisingly cool with it. Uh, he's wearing oh. the latex mask and lying to her. And the fact that she does not notice this furry man under the latex. <laughs> you guys have comments. It's so weird. It must like... have been some latex job. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, latex has a specific smell. So, like, <laughs> right. how close are they if she doesn't notice this? <laughs> yeah. Well, but he smells like the beast. So that's overwhelming any smell of latex, you know? Yeah. It's just like all McCoy musk, you <laughs> know? M McCoy musk under latex. No, thank you. Uh, Wait, do, we, so do we know that he has a musk? Do we know that he smells? <laughs> I mean, that's fair. <laughs> I just assumed he must have a musk. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, my only take on Vera is that she has the incredible line, uh, if, if we didn't, if we don't get to Canada in a week, the whole world will die. Die, <laughs> and he goes away. The world and like, will you're just, die. You're just gonna have to trust me. Okay, I'll fast forward. We're gonna cover this later this year on my show. Steve Englehart picks up this plotline in Incredible Hulk. The mimic's powers are destabilizing, and he's starting to draw upon the life force of other people in order to stay alive. So his mimic powers are like draining people. And he sent Vera, like, please go get help. And instead of like calling someone on the phone, she just like drove cross country, like, because his powers might overload at any moment. Uh, so this story, this plotline wraps up an in incredible Hulk with uh, with Hulk and Beast and Mimic. Uh, we'll cover that later this year on my show. But yeah, we'll get that out of the way here quickly. Um, Beast and Vera are walking among, and this is one of the interesting things in this issue. They're walking among a bunch of parade floats as the Rutland Parade sets up. There are people uh, dressed as the Hulk and Doctor Strange, but there are also people dressed as Superman and Batman in this uh, and other like <laughs> licensed characters, which is really interesting that they kind of got to work that in, even though it's not directly stated. Any thoughts on this? I think well, it's I another one of those like, this would never happen today in a million years <laughs> type thing. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, I feel like they kind of went, they tried to do a little bit of like, this is not exactly Supergirl. Like she has the symbol on her breath on the side of her, you know, outside of her chest as opposed to directly in front. Superman, I mean, it's, I see one little shot of, it, it kind of looks like an S, but not really. Um, so I think they kind of sort of tried to sort of make it not exactly, you know, like the Superman logo. 
that was our way of like, you know, making it noticeable enough to like, oh, that's Superman, but it's not exactly identical. Um, <laughs> the, Flash, really... the, Flash, the Flash one is interesting too because he has like the golden wings and the, the gold, you know, the gold, the, the gloves. There's the color scheme, but it's not really exactly the Flash costume, you know, so it's, it's kind of like uh, a little off. <laughs> and I want to presume there's just like inside jokes worked into all of this for the people who were there. There's a moment, uh, Glynis is dressed up as like a Supergirl parody in like a short red skirt. And Len Wein says to her, this is her husband. He says, if you came dressed as the Hulk, you'd look beautiful, Glynis. Speaking of which, did you notice the movie's marquee read Welcome Hulk? Like H-A-U-L-K. Well, at least they tried. There's a lot of little fun little one-liners in all of this. It's cute. They're working in some personal things. Uh, yeah. A portal opens up and a juggernaut attacks and just starts ripping through uh, floats uh, that say things like Marvel and superheroes. He's yeah. bragging about how amazing he is again. And then he gets sucked right back into the Eternity <laughs> Dimension one more time. Uh, any thoughts up to this point? It just seems like the like the flimsiest uh, reason to keep the plot moving. Just for like me and my buddies are had a party. I don't know, have Juggernaut pop in every now and then. So something our artist has something to draw. <laughs> um, I mean, there's there's a panel where Juggernaut physically destroys tangible letters that say superhero, and I yes. think that is the most cool on the nose shit <laughs> I have ever. I'm like. I don't know how you do it more but better than that. It's like, look, there it is. He beats up superheroes. Boom. Right. I don't know. I'm 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 really impressed with with that. That there's something cooking there. <laughs> this is fun. Glennis Oliver goes missing, and there's like a thing, a backplot in the issue where they're like, where is she? And they find her at the end. It's fine. Uh, and then and then Beast is like, I better go find her too. And he's still in his latex. So he tells Villarreal to go back to the hotel. We talk about this in a previous episode, but there's this idea of him wearing clothes to hide his true self, right? Which is like the story of every trans person and every gay person who's like trying to fit in and be something they're not. And uh, he has to like act weird, but then he gets to rip his clothes off and be free all over again. We talked about this last episode where we compare beasts binding his body up so he can stand up straight and angel binding his wings down. And there's a little co literal conversation about uh, between them about what it's like to have to bind and hide who you are. Uh, so we talked oh. about this before, but once he rips his clothes off, he can be himself all over again. Uh, he he uh, He's in a place where he can be normal. Nobody's going to notice the beast lumbering around because he's in the middle of a Halloween environment. So he runs up into the woods. The Juggernaut's portal keeps opening right over the beast because it's connected to him for reasons. We get a moment where he says he he can follow his, I think, emanations is the word. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, there's a fight in the woods. Uh, there is uh, throwing. And uh, Ryan, do you want to talk to us about the beast Juggernaut fight? Uh, sure. There's there's tracking. There's crumping. There's crooming. <laughs> um, all your favorite onomatopoeias that we all know and love. Um, it, it's like, it, it's pretty, uh, standard. I mean, like after the, the majesty of the parade destruction, uh, it's just sort of beast is running and he is continually surprised that Juggernaut can catch him, uh, which is confusing to me as a person who I feel like from the beginning, the Juggernaut, it's like what he does is he chases you and catches you and beast is like, I'm going to jump over this tree. I'm going to, I'm going to run over this power plant. The Juggernaut could never run through these objects. He's not famous for running through objects and destroying them. Um, 
He like opens the ground with a punch, and then Beast tries to pull his helmet off with his feet and hand. And this is my favorite Juggernaut. His his line here. He goes, "You may remember I'm powerless without my headpiece, Beast, but I know you're powerless with a body full of broken bones." Fantastic. Amazing king shit. <laughs> and he he jumped. The only thing I wanted to say about this sequence is otherwise just you know like a lot of Beast thinking and running away from Juggernaut is that he, cha- he he tries to like trick Juggernaut into running through this power plant as if that'll solve him. And he has this amazing, I don't know why I'm sewing him up in this, at the end of one page he's like, at the end of page 14 he's like, there, that'll slow him down, trying to get over, under, around, or, and the Juggernaut explodes through the thing and Beast continues with, throops? Uh, <laughs> which is just like so silly and I feel like if I put that in a script today and editor would be like, Throops? What do you? No, no. Through okay, okay. What the are page, the page before Throops, Ryan. Is this a crossover yes. with your story? If you go back to the page before, you'll notice Beast thinking there's a tiger yes. in that take. Brute, brute yes. force isn't going to make it. Is this, uh, is this a tie into your brute force story? Doctor Flipper himself is going to show up <laughs> in that waterfront and do some dolphin stuff. Um, a. I you know I hate to say this because uh, I loved writing brute force, but Juggernaut could take all those animals, no problem. <laughs> he would, it would be bad, like it would be like a crime against nature. But he he could destroy those animals. He could he could take them. <laughs> you, you think this version of Juggernaut could take them? I don't know. <laughs> That's true. He's he's the the disappearing thing is rough, but in general, uh, like touting his weaknesses, he's. I feel like Beast shouldn't be able to beat the Juggernaut, personally. Like, I'm like, this should be an easy fight for Juggernaut. And it is embarrassing how... (laughs) Beast Beast realizes that. He realizes that. Let me read his inner dialogue here. This is when he's running at the power plant. He goes, I've got to put my brain to work and quit acting like it's preordained for me to come out on top. So uh, this this idea of him realizing that there's also a really cool lettering bit when he's jumping over the power plant and like the thoughts move along with his image when the juggernaut wants you. I think that. Yes. Charlotte Jetter, dude. Charlotte Jetter. She knew what was up. (laughs) Ryan, how is uh, how is the juggernaut defeated? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, like ultimately, ultimately he falls in this sequence. He falls down a cliff. And then Beast runs back to the party. <laughs> yep. So, Philip, do you want to take it from there? Tell us a little about what happens next. Yeah, so Beast has the unstoppable juggernaut chasing him. He cannot defeat him, so he decides, I'm just going to go to a house party full of hippies, and that will somehow not lead to wanton destruction and violence. <laughs> I'm like, I do not understand Hank's reasoning, other than, you know, the writers just want to get back to putting themselves as cameos I mean, in the what, book. <laughs> what he reasons briefly is, if I put my mask on and pretend to be a human, he won't know which one of them is me. So he'll just kill all the humans, and I'll hopefully... That at the end of that sequence, the the McCoy latex mask at the end of page fifteen looks so horrifying. In these, it like it looks like he's clutching a severed head. It is so. It's great for that the the awesomeness of like the trans allegory read and all that stuff and like the semiotics there. But in the, the mo that is just so horrifying is like his latex yeah. face. I just like how, of- how he has the time to go back and change. <laughs> 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 like. He's having a battle with like arguably one of the strongest 
you know, strongest characters in the Marvel Universe. I'm going to go back and put my mask on. I'm going to go change, put my clothes on. Uh, you know, uh, people will point to, I want to say it's X-Men 27 from roughly 95, where Beast trades Threnody's life for information from Mr. Sinister about the legacy virus as the turning point of uh, McCoy becoming this evil mastermind that we now see him as. But now I'm like, maybe it was this moment here where he's like, hopefully he can kill tons of humans and I can get away. <laughs> it, the first the first moment for that is Uncanny X-Men number eight. The untouchable okay. issue. That's the first version of Evil Beast. He's the full oh. time. Okay. Um, yeah, so he shows up to the party at Tom Fagan's house um, and uh, the all the different people from the town and different comics creators are there dressed in varieties of costumes. And of course, uh, have we have we remarked on how weird Juggernaut proportionally is drawn in this issue? I know I had Very to step away strange. for just a minute, but it's there's like right. no shape at times. It's just like a giant, I don't know, like barrel with arms. At anyway, it's it's fun, but it's also very weird. Um, before, Juggern- before he has his Kool-Aid man moment, let me comment on a couple <laughs> things on this page. Tom, Tom Fagan is dressed as Nighthawk, who is Marvel's kind of loose version of Batman. Which okay. is kind of interesting because he would always dress as Batman at the parades. There's yes. also in that second panel we get our X Men reference. There are cosplayers as the Scarlet Witch and, uh, and Cyclops. Cyclops there. Yeah, we also and Start. this is a great line. Roy Thomas has worked in here and he's talking to his wife Jean. Anyway, Jeannie, I said that's the first time I ever saw the Invisible Girl with dimples. Never mind that, Roy. Listen to my next night nurse plot, honey. All you ever <laughs> talk about is comics. I don't know who this guy in the back is, but he's bragging about only ever drinking milk. Like okay. these <laughs> here, they're they're making fun of other Marvel staffers here, and it's delightful. There's a lot. <laughs> lot of like clean living jokes in this issue and the ah milk never touch anything stronger like i took a screenshot of that i'm like what is going on with this guy like what <laughs> is it comics code authority stuff do you think or is it literally just bits oh no i bet he's literally making fun of someone in the office but i don't know who it is without asking steve yeah. i'm gonna, I'm gonna yeah. ask him i'm gonna screenshot the panel i'll ask him <laughs> Uh, okay, cool. Um, give us uh, give us Juggernaut's Kool Aid Man moment. Sure. Yeah. There's a a creak in the wall, and then Baloom he bursts through the wall like the Kool Aid Man and says, "I warned you, I could follow your emanations." Whatever. That's a way better catchphrase than "Oh yeah." <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna start saying that to people now. Be like, "I followed your emanations here." Um, and then Beast takes off upstairs because that's always the surefire way to thing to do to get away from a, a killer. Um, and he's having, like, I don't know what Tom Fagan did for a living, but he lives in this giant, like, mansion on the hill. There's, like, <laughs> multiple levels, so many rooms. Um, and then he drops to the ground, and he tears his face off, and he snars at the juggernaut, which is a great panel. You texted it to me the, the other night. <laughs> he, looks, he looks like a lion. He looks like Cat Beast. Remember Cat Beast from later? Oh, like I love Cat, Cat Beast. Beast. Good old he Graham Morrison's Cat Beast. Um, and then they start fighting, uh, but now Beast is in his suit, and he finally is able to pry off Juggernaut's helmet, and uh, Bump Thump knocks him down the stairs, and then we get to fun, like, yeah, I don't know if the like his body shape entirely changes again, now he's a much fuller and rounder figure, as opposed to just like... Like a like a cannon uh, that, where he was and before. And that helmet does not come off that easy. Beast just like gives it a yoink. He just like yeah. the eye holes and pulls. This, this is not how it works. <laughs> it's like how did he not get that off earlier? He did the exact same thing with his feet, but you know, convenience. <laughs> um, yeah, and then it's you've stolen my powers somehow. Oh, his helmet. He's, he's, sorry, it's his helmet. But then it says you've doomed me, and that hour is exactly midnight. And then as Beast runs down the hill, runs down the stairs, tearing all his clothes off for some reason. He's already defeated him. I don't know why he needed to suddenly tear his clothes all off. 
um, other than we get that great shot of Beast's butt. So, um, <laughs> Juggernaut tries to steal Steve Englehart's car. That's the that's the through line on all three stories as things keep happening to Steve's car. <laughs> Poor Steve's car. Um, yeah, so Juggernaut actually shrink because he's able to fit in that car with no problem. It's, it's <laughs> he's uh, that, he's they're fully trailing him now. Talk to tell yeah. us what happens to Juggernaut. Um, yeah, I mean, so Beast, like, tackles him out of the car, um, and thankfully, like, I don't know, the car door opens nicely instead of ripping it off the hinges like it should have. Um, yeah. but yeah, as they, as they start fighting, um, uh, Kane Marco begins to rapidly age and, and depower, um, and I, I, even reading this, I was like, I'm still, it still wasn't ever clear to me as to what this has to do with anything, um, and yeah. But yeah, he's the effects of the other dimension tried to age me. Hate was an antidote. It kept me young. But when you beat me, hate turned to fear. Youth ended. <laughs> Juggernaut, uh, Juggernaut in a series of panels, His he goes like full red head and then like yellow, blonde, orange head and then a white head. And then you get that close up of his face and he looks like the Holy Grail guy, right? Like the yeah. guy yeah. right from the wrong one and then like withered away. Yep. Uh, it's the worst juggernaut story ever. Uh, anyone disagree? Uh, yeah, no, no. It's funny. I think um, over on the Cerebro podcast, they just did a juggernaut episode. Now I need to go back and listen to see, like, did they touch upon this really they weird? Sure did. Okay, yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna very, go back very briefly, but they do talk about it. <laughs> yeah, it is so weird. He holy grails him, and then. He theoretically disappears, even though the panel where he disappears, it's drawn and colored in such a way like I didn't notice it the first couple times I read it to be like, where did Juggernaut go? <laughs> oh, wait, he just, oh, that's, that's, that is. Okay, yeah, yeah, he gets yeah. sorts into the dimension he, again. Okay. He does. Yeah, we could, we could have used an insert panel or something. But then we go to, yeah, where uh, Glennis was gone, and but where were you? I don't really remember, but I think I had a good time. Did that happen in another issue? I know it crossed I literally, over. I literally asked Steve this, and he's like, <laughs> no, I just was writing dialogue. It's not, it's not based <laughs> on true events, this interchange. I mean, I was thinking because I know this takes place in that triad of Avengers, this and then a Justice League comic. I was like, oh, maybe Glennis nope. was in Justice League. Nope, no, okay. Nope, nope. Just, uh, <laughs> yep, I read the other issues. Uh, and then we get the final boxes about the Beast. Then the Beast is alone, terribly alone, alone in a world full of strangers. Behind, uh, behind them, the Beast lopes quietly into the towering forest and stands until dawn in the cold, cold, dark, alone. And that's the end of Amazing Adventures, except in issue number 17, and we talked to Steve about this. They're like, ooh, we have a publishing deadline. He got the idea to then put uh, Beast's original or origin story with the Conquistador, those little five-page backups from the 60s together. He wrote a little two-page intro where the Beast is like, he's uh, basically saying, look, uh, here I am for one more feature, and then I got to go out on a long, long night. See you later, cowboys. And he like, walks off into the moon. And that, that's uh, that's it for Amazing Adventures. What was it like for you guys to read this story? Do you have any concluding thoughts? Uh, for me, real quick, it was, I just, I, I sort of getting sort of sucked into comics with Chris Claremont, who's, you know, verbose and intellectual and try to sort of, I don't know, highbrow comics. <laughs> this was very silly to me. Um, but, you know, it's it was fun. It was, I, I didn't get it. And the characters don't resonate with me as the characters I know, um, especially Juggernaut. Um, but, you know, it was... I appreciate it for what it was. I do like the cover a lot. <laughs> but yeah, you, people. I have to keep reminding people regarding these this era of comics. This is before the X Men were popular. These were yeah. like the forgotten yeah. toys nobody was using. You know, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, Ryan, any was... concluding thoughts? Um, a big one for me is that 
the, I love this last panel because it is so sincere and serious. And the beautiful thing about it is that Vera is like yeah. one block away in a motel room. He is not alone. <laughs> Literally, a woman is like hunting him and dragging him around and like with him all night. And he's like, the beast is so alone. I'm like, you went to a party. You've been hanging out with people all night. You're not alone. You have a drug- You're fine. You got tons of friends. You even like people give you a ride into this town, man. You can walk around in latex and no, no doses. You're doing fine, okay? You can suffer. Call me when in a night crawler shows up. All right. Call me when somebody really has trouble <laughs> and is also you, blue. Uh, you know. You know what's funny is that that panel where he's going snar. Do you ever see that movie? That old like '70s movie, Gargoyles. Yeah, yeah. He kind of looks like that gargoyle character. Sure, sure. I see that. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. You guys, uh, it has been such an honor to have the three of you here with me today. And for everybody who's come for these amazing adventure stories, every time I get to wrap up a new section, I feel like I've accomplished something really cool. So <laughs> I, I've done the beast, I've done the beast amazing adventure stories. Now we will get to beast again later. Uh this is right before he joins the Avengers. Mm-hmm. So uh Steve Steve later picks up that uh thread in his Avengers run when he brings Beast into the team. Uh, and this is a really fun part of his individual history, and it really is the representation of the tone change for the X-Men. Uh, we're building toward giant size this year on my show. We're going to go to some really cool places. In the next nice. five issue reviews, we're going to be doing and another obscure title from the 70s. It's called Astonishing Tales. We're going to be doing five stories. Uh, the first two are Kazar versus Craven the Hunter, and it's so horny and so wonderful. <laughs> and then we get to do uh, the introductions of Garok the Petrified Man and Zaladane. So uh, watch for that on my show in the next handful of episodes. Uh, as we are wrapping up, where can people find each of you online? And we're going to put this out February 5th. Is there anything you would like to plug? Uh, Ryan Katie. Uh, yeah, uh, you can find me mostly on Instagram at ry underscore katie. Um, and then uh, February 5th, uh, around this time this is coming out, I will have a story in Marvel's new Alien Black, White, and Blood anthology um, that is like a lifetime dream thing for me. So uh, I really hope people read it and like it. Uh, I love the Xenomorph. She's a queen. I have seen uh, the 1970s horror movie Gargoyles, but I've never seen Alien. <laughs> You've never seen Alien? No, I know. Oh, I know. I this is happening it. at the end of the podcast? Are you kidding? <laughs> oh, no! Wow, Chad. You oh, wow. watched our new podcast, which is you watching Alien, and we pause it every 10 minutes, and that's an episode that we talk about. <laughs> I will gladly let you know what I think. I'll make that happen. <laughs> uh, Chris, would you like to go next? Uh, sure. Uh, I'm on Magnus Arts on Instagram. Uh, I mean, it's not really me, but um, uh, yeah, that's kind of where I am. I'm not really a social media person. <laughs> uh, anything you want to plug, man? Uh, no, I mean, I got like projects coming up, but nothing I can really talk about, I don't think. Yeah, you got to be careful. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. It's great to meet you, Chris. Thank you. And thank great. you, Ryan, especially for coming on the show. It's so fun to so uh, nerd out over your stuff. Uh, lastly, Philip? Um, yeah, I am on Instagram at philipcvcomicart. I would like to do this Steve Fox and say goodbye to all social media, which he finally stepped off, I think, this week. Um, but I am not quite strong enough yet, so you can find me there. Um, by this time, uh, just read X-Men Unlimited on the Marvel Unlimited app. We all have a lot of fun stuff happening, working our way into early summer. So that's me. 
Uh, lastly, I'm Chad Anderson. I keep my own social media private because I've got kiddos, although three of you are welcome to add me now that I have met you. Uh, next up on the show in uh, in February 12th is going to be the review of Astonishing Tales number one, featuring the talents of Rob Kirby, along with my friends uh, Seth Martell and Steve Duda co-hosting with me. And out on the Patreon channel right after this, there's going to be a really delicious episode all about Kendra with uh, Kendra writer Sarah Gailey. And I'm so excited to hang out with Sarah. I'm recording that this week. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you, uh, Philip. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Ryan. We'll see you back here next time on Great Boston Life. Hey, everybody. Thank you for staying tuned for our script reading for the month of February. Today, we are going to be reading the uh, incredible story, maybe my favorite Magneto story, uh, X-Men Unlimited number two from September 1993. Uh, this story is called Point Blank. It's written by Fabian Nicieza with pencils by Jan Dersema. Uh, on inks is the combination of Dan Panosian, Keith Williams, Jimmy Palmiotti, and Joe Rubenstein, Marie Javins on colors, Richard Starkings on letters, and Kelly Corvace is the editor. Uh, and let's go ahead and read our cast list. My name is Justin Wilder, and I will be your narrator, as well as Henry Peter Gyrick. <laughs> Lucky. I am Chad Anderson, and I will be playing Adrian Eiskalt. I am Trumling Nguyen, and I'm going to be playing Magneto and Blob. I'm Melanie Bolin, and I'm going to be doing Moira McTaggart and Felder. I'm Caroline Cosplay, and I'll be doing Valerie Cooper and Dr. Walter Rosen. I am Steve Duda, and I will be playing Alexei Vajan and Toad. <laughs> I'm Devanda Martini. I will be playing Fantasia and Ted Koppel. Ted fucking Koppel's in this issue, guys. I <laughs> know. <laughs> uh, I am Andre Mason. I will be playing Empyrean and Exodus. Uh, I'm Scott Free, and I will be playing uh, Pyro, Dr. Heisenberg, and uh, Graydon Creed. God, there's a lot of awful characters in this issue. <laughs> <laughs> I am Alicia Wilder, and I will be playing Gabrielle Haller and Bova. I cannot wait for your Bova voice. Uh, let's begin our reading of X-Men Unlimited number two. We start with pages two through four. We open on a double-page spread of Magneto, dramatically attacking the military in a burst of magnetic energy. Tanks go flying, soldiers falling out of them, as metal renders under the touch of Magneto, master of magnetism. When I first saw him, it was like looking directly into the sun at high noon, simply overwhelming in his brilliance, domineering in his superiority, prostrating in his arrogance. He was everything I was led to believe he would be. Magneto, one of the most powerful mutants on the face of the planet, espouser of the dominant rights of homo superior over normal humans. And he was more. He was cold, clinical, methodical, none of which I expected from a man whose psyche profile indicated an aversion to the military mindset. Yet there we were, soldiers in the East German army being buffeted about like toys. His control over the electromagnetic field was frightening in its applications. Bullets aimed at his heart found their way back to the trigger men. The iron in our blood was used to cause seizures and strokes. Tanks, which I had seen crush mortar and bone alike, were rent asunder, as if made of tissue paper. The air burned, the wind screamed, and through the din, his voice could be heard like the snarling of a rabid wolf. You will not take Wundagore Mountain for your own. I will not allow you to tread so callously upon consecrated ground. I heard him bellow as our commander cried for a strategic withdrawal. 
Pages five through eight, two men go running through the snow seeking shelter. They find a cabin with a cow woman with a shawl over her shoulder waiting. Magneto is also there at the grave of his deceased wife, Magda. It wasn't an order we had to think twice about. What could possess a man so, I thought then. As Ute and I fled the scene of the carnage, I wondered what made Wondergore Mountain worthy of Magneto's attentions. I asked Ute where he was going, but he, panicking, ran, ran blindly through the heavy woods. He did not answer. Where are we? I asked. He did not know. We had reached a clearing in the forest. We had come upon a small cabin. Could this be the madman's home? Ute asked desperately. I knew that no one as superior as Magneto could live in such a hovel, and when I saw it, I did not. And when I saw it, I knew who did live there. That creature did, that hideous woman that was certainly not human, and yet not animal. The cow-like thing. She looked as terrified as we must have. Then, in a coarse, dry voice, she said, Run! Save yourself! Ute muttered something about a tombstone, I'm not sure what. I was watching the cow woman flee in the darkness. I was looking with detached curiosity as the leaves and branches above my, above my head whipped to and fro. I was watching the monster from hell calmly alight on the snow-swept ground. I was staring at my own impending death with an almost bemused indifference. You have disturbed my wife's eternal sleep, he said with a voice now choking in contained fury. Have you no respect? Ute threw his arms up, surrendering immediately. A part of me was furious with him, the rest ashamedly grateful that it was he and not I who so quickly gave in to the fear which swept through us both. Magneto looked at us with those eyes. They were beyond inhuman. They were drowning pools, devoid of reason and hope. And he bellowed. Surrender yourselves? Isn't that what my family did? What my wife did? What I did time and again, surrender myself to your tender mercies, only to have that thrown back into my face through the pain, misery, and death your kind has inflicted on me and mine? Magneto gestures, ripping Ute to shreds. Ute exploded. There was no other way to describe it. His entire body simply ruptured. I watched as his mutilated body fell before me. I was beyond fear, beyond comprehension. When I looked down at the smoldering remains of Ute, the monster's voice softened. She always did say I would bring violence to her. He whispered. When I learned that this was the last place she may have known hope, where our twin children were born, I built a monument to her. I swore never to allow blood to be spilled here. It is too late for that now, because of your corrupt government's desire for this mountain's marvels. It is too late. Go now. He muttered, his rage building again. Take your fellow soldier with you and go. He was more than my troopmate, I cried, my anger at this butcher superseding my sense of survival. He was my brother. And what he said next, I'll never forget. He said, So then... You now know the pain of loss as sharply as I do. Not much difference between human pain and mutant pain is there. And he left. Pages 9 through 10, we shift to a psychiatrist's office, that of Dr. Heisenberg. Adrian Escalt is dressed in a blue suit with a patterned black shirt underneath. 
He's standing while his red-headed female therapist sits, wearing a high collar and pleated lapel. That was over seven years ago. You live in that moment, Adrian. Why can't you let it go? I, I would prefer not to, Dr. Heisenberg. Keeping the angers, the hatreds, constantly stoked provides the fuel I need to keep on living. Look around, Adrian. The Berlin Wall is down. For better or worse, our country is now united. Shouldn't your body and mind be as well? You are free of your obligations to state service now. Isn't it time to begin your life again? Don't you owe Ute more than this? Perhaps I do. Adrian keeps seeing flashes of himself shooting Magneto in the head. It's just such a cleansing fire inside me, Doctor. It simplifies things. It provides me with an impetus, a clarity of vision. Then why continue to see me, Mr. Eiskalt? Is it becoming it is becoming quite obvious that you do not want to move beyond that which emotionally cripples you? I come because I still want to find a better way to save myself. A better way than what, Adrian? A better way than what? Pages 11 through 13. We're at Empire State University, Manhattan, New York. As a crowded room applauds, Professor Felder introduces special guest Gabrielle Haller. As Haller speaks, she flashes images of Magneto on the screen, then images of the concentration camps, the mass graves, and Magnus's work with patients after the war. I would like to ask you to join me in welcoming our special guest lecturer, Israel's former ambassador to Great Britain, Dr. Gabrielle Haller. Thank you, Professor Felder. Quite an interesting approach you've chosen for a class entitled Practical Applications of International Law, isn't it? Demagogues of the 20th Century, a weekly seminar series, a topic I'm sad to say, with far too many examples to cite as evident from your roster of previous guest speakers. The man we are here to discuss today is unique in his own right, a man we know precious little about. With the official record having precious little to say, we believe the man who would become Magneto was born Eric Magnus Lencher uh, to a gypsy family of Sente descent outside Gardenesk, Poland, then known as Danzing around 1928. After Danzing was annexed to Nazi Germany in 1939, the young man then named Erich, Erich, along with thousands of other gypsies, was shifted to work a camp in the city of Auschwitz. We all know what happened then. It is, or should be, indelibly branded in our collective consciousness. Genocide, extermination, not only of the Jewish race, but also, also of the Poles, the Gypsies, the homosexuals, the intellectuals, anyone the master race felt was disposable. Lenscher lost his parents and sister during his imprisonment in Auschwitz, but he gained something in the liberation of the camp in 1945 as well. He gained a hope in the form of a wife, a woman named Magda. In 1946, they took up residence in the Ukrainian city of Vinitsa, where Magda gave birth to a daughter they had named Anya. But Lenscher had learned something else about himself in Auschwitz, something which was becoming more apparent and more frightening to him every day. He learned he was a mutant, and when Anya was tragically killed in an arsonist's fire, 
Lencher lashed out at the villagers who refused to help save her. And Magna, Magda, seeing what fires raged behind her husband's ice-cold eyes, fled. She ran as far away from him as she could, and in his misery, in his loneliness, he went to Israel to save his own soul. He chose to work with survivors of the camps and in turn helped them regain theirs. And that is where I met him, for I was a patient in the hospital in Haifa. Lencher had taken to calling himself Magnus, and by choosing his middle name, he could bring some semblance of balance and simplicity to his haunted life. Magneto helped nurse me back to health. Does that make me an objective lecturer? You may well wonder. For the most part, I can separate Magnus the man from Magneto the mutant crusader. And please note my choice of words, for I have valid reason to label Magneto crusader and not dictator. Firstly, he has no country to call his own. Secondly, he has fought for a specific cause, not for personal power. Which begs the question then, before he died in a battle above earth, was Magneto a demagogue or an ideologue? Was he a tyrannical madman placing himself above the rights of humanity or a righteous zealot fighting for a noble cause? Equality for mutants? Can any one of us truly answer such a question? Pages 14 and 15. On an airplane, Iskalt is reading Fatal Attraction, Mutant and Man and Men by J.B. Chalmers. An old woman sits next to him. I've always hated the feeling when the wheels first leave the ground. You get a palpable sense that control over your life has been placed in the hands of others. Ironic, though, considering how I have lived my life on land and that this should worry me in the air. I leave Berlin in order to regain that lost sense of control. And in New York lies the beginning of the end. Excuse me, son, may I get by? Either for myself or for the butcher who flays my nightmares. Thank you, son. Seeing a man who looks like Magneto on the plan, Iskalt rushes, pulling a weapon from his pocket. Magnus! Oh! Precise, analytical, clinical, dispassionate. Be the monster he was. Kill him as he killed Ute. Precise, a needle concealed in a pen. Analytical, a needle tipped with poison. Magnus! Uh, and say? Escalt. Iskalt causes a ruckus on the plane as he surprises the old man. Clinical, a poison coursing through his veins. Um, es tut mir lead? It's all right. I mistake man for someone else. Sorry. Iskalt walks away, picturing himself murdering Magneto again. Dispassionate, a raging poison burning through his veins, fires raging inside him as they rage inside of me, as they raged through my brother, as they cleanse and purify all that is wrong with mutants and with me. Ages 16 through 18. We're in Manhattan two days later. In a hotel, Iskalt watches a news program. Jonathan Chambers, known in some circles as Imperion, is being interviewed by Ted Koppel on the news. That is exactly what I'm claiming, Mr. Koppel. As I stated quite thoroughly in my new book, mankind must ultimately bear the responsibility for the proliferation of the mutant gene throughout the planet. Over the last several decades, we have introduced so many contagions into the environment, we have simply made their inevitable way into the human DNA structure. 
thereby resulting in more mutant offspring. How can we blame mutants for this? It is an analogous to blaming the grass when a weed takes root. So, you compare mutants to weeds then, Mr. Chambers? Like ivy growing out of control in a brick wall? Your analogy attempts to portray my analogy as something else. Ugly, Mr. Koppel. I merely compare them from a visual standpoint. The ivy clings to the surface of a wall, thrives on it, grows on it, and eventually becomes to dominate the visual paranormal. Far be it for me to play dueling analogies, Mr. Chambers. But in your own oblique way, isn't your best-selling book sending a warning signal that mutants are closer than ever to becoming this planet's dominant species? <laughs> I say tonight, Ted, as I say in my book, Fatal Attractions, that they exist like the ivy on the brick wall, that the two can mutually coexist and in some cases become greater than the sum of their parts. Joining me in the studio is a man who would agree with much of what you just say, Mr. Chambers, but not with your conclusions. We bring back to Nightline the founder of a group called Friends of Humanity, Mr. Graydon Creed. Mr. Creed, in light of recent terrorist activities by former members of your organization who claim they were acting on their own without your approval, how can you say that your organization is any better or worse than the mutants you rail against? Ted, you cite one radical fringe element of my organization, which was protesting the fact that two mutant terrorists were not being charged for their crimes by a United States government too afraid of the mutant lobby to act decisively and then blow the incident out of proportion. The increased amount of mutant activity since my last appearance alone, which could be called into question, far outnumber the acts of humans desperately and justifiably terrified for their own well-being. I call Mr. Cree's reasoning into question. He bandies the phrase mutant lobby as a buzzword, but the truth is that mutants are not an organized congressional lobby, nor do they have representation in any of the world's governing bodies. Indeed, Magneto's disappearance last year, the mutant population doesn't even have a strong voice in their own affairs. Are you calling Magneto a statesman? I'm saying that just like our founding fathers or Martin Luther King, Magneto's was a voice raised to be heard above the process of the majority and ruling classes. So was Hitler's. As an image of Magneto graces the screen, Iskalt turns the TV off. So many sides to one man. How can that be? How can anyone see him for anything other than what he truly is? A murderer. Pages 19 through 21. We're at the Grand Hotel. We're, we're at the Grand Hyatt Hotel. Grand Central Station, Manhattan. Adrian Iskalt, in a blue jacket and tie, meets Gabrielle Haller, dressed in green and olive, for a meal in a nice restaurant. This way, madame. Frau Haller. Herr Escott, guten Morgen. You ordered the fruit and grain platter, I see. Good choice. It is always well prepared here. Permit me to be blunt, Herr Escott. I am not comfortable with this meeting. I am not comfortable with what you represent. I have only agreed to come here because people I respect in both our respective governments, as well as those in the United States, Asked me to. Frau Horror, what my country wants, I do. Uh, pardon my English. You understand. We talk only of things who might be, yes, things we might need to be doing if Magneto is alive. Who is to know it do to be happening? Do not patronize me, sir. I know what you are. And should Magnus be alive again, 
I know what our countries would like you to do. Gabrielle snacks on a strawberry while the delivers a menu. She lights up a cigarette. Thank you, but I won't be staying long enough to eat. You disappoint me. How can you ignore threat of Magneto? You've been through much pain in life, yes? Caused no by men who be like Magneto? Unlike certain voices in my government who would rationalize their own history, it is because of my background that I support Magnus's goals. He, he was, is, whatever, a man of vision, of courage, and honor. What he seeks for mutants is not so different from what my people built for themselves after the Holocaust, is it? What would you call Israel, if not a place where people of like minds and goals can be what they want to be, free from the persecution of others? So you will not help me. We cannot be working together, Germans and Israelis with same wantings? Ah, rather sad, isn't it, that what now unites our two countries is a threat which is greater than the sum of its parts? I would say necessary, not sad. I will only assist you if your goal is to apprehend Magnus for the specific purpose of putting him on trial for his actions and thereby granting him the forum through which he can once again express his views. If your fool's mission is to kill Magnus, then this conversation is over. Kill him? I assure you, my employers wish to be capturing him only. To kill him is to martyr him. To martyr him is to be advancing his cause. I will make some phone calls. I will gather some information for you. It would be helpful, Frau Haller. But you do not fool me, Herr Eiskalt. I can see it in your eyes. Your motives in this matter are personal, not professional. If you approach this from a personal position, you are doomed to fail. Magnus is beyond such things. Good day. But is your precious Magneto beyond life and death? I imagine we shall soon find out. Pages 22 through 26 in the Atlantic off the Key West Island of Florida. The Brotherhood of Evil Mutants is on a boat under the blaring sun. Blob lathers on sunscreen while Toad and Pyro look over to the horizon. Fantasia, in a purple bikini and sunglasses, reads a book on astrophysics. <clears throat> um, you sure this is where we're supposed to be, mate? Yes, I'm sure, Johnny. Steer the bloody boat and leave the thinking to me. Ah, quit your belly aching, you Aussie toothpick. I'm the one whose delicate skin's gonna burn to a crisp out here. Pyro plays with his lighter, dangerously. Fred, old bubba boy, should be talking. Shouldn't be taking. To wow. All right, Fred, old bubba boy, you shouldn't be talking to me about burning up now, mate. Should you? All of you, be quiet. Someone, something, is coming. Are you sure, Eileen? Of course, I am. Her eyes glow with purple energy. The disruption in the electromagnetic field is like a slap in the face. I'm certain it is. Don't belittle my intellect, Mortimer. And I won't belittle your greed. They are, after all, our two best features. Not from where I'm squatting, my dear. <laughs> the sky crackles with energy as a portal opens and Exodus passes through, descending from the sky. Whoever arranged this meeting has arrived. Brotherhood of Mutants. Mortimer Toynbee, known as the Toad. Frederick Dukes, the Blob, St. Hunt Allardyce, Pyro, and Aileen Hawshaw, 
Fantasia. Thank you for meeting me here. I am Exodus. I am the ferryman assigned to take mutant kind on a journey to a better place. Oh, I'm just sure you are, my good man. What do you want with us? With you? Nothing. What does he want? He offers a haven, a refuge, a home. How many bathrooms? A sanctuary is built, growing actually from the seed of future decay and past sins. And you're telling me he wants us to go live with him? Not all of you, Fred. Just that need. Me? Why just me? Because you're the only one he has deemed worthy. Arrogant, self-righteous pig! All my life he has bedeviled me with his conceit. Why aren't we all worthy of his highness's keeping? Because there is no, simply no place in Avalon for mutants like yourself and Frederick. People who lack vision and potential. What about me? I got 2020 here. You might have been considered St. John. Have you not become tainted? Tainted? What are you talking about? Eileen, your answer, please. I... I don't... No. No. I... No. Very well. Very well, mutants. May your coming death be painless. And Exodus disappears. Lord, he never changes, does he? His monumental sense of self-importance never ceases to amaze me. How dare he? How dare he? Sodden him. Tainted? Sodden them both. Taking us in, mates. We got a pretty good racket going on our own, right? We still got an afternoon meeting at Jimmy Buffett's, right? Good. Let's make us some nice gip, no strings attached. Who needs Magneto, anyways? Pages 27 through 32. The sun sets over the desert. In a hotel room, Adrian Eiskalt looks at photographs spread out on his bed. He smokes a cigarette, standing in a towel, and he looks good. <laughs> a photo of Magneto and the Toad in the old days. A photo of Magneto wielding power. A brochure for Xavier's school for gifted youngsters, with Magneto in a suit on the cover. A photo of the original Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. A photo of Captain America and the Wasp fighting Magneto. A photo of Kazar and Zabu running. A photo of baby Magneto. A photo of Magneto seizing power. A photo of Magneto in handcuffs during his trial. A photo of Magneto with an angry Quicksilver and an evil Scarlet Witch. A photo of the burning asteroid M. Iskalt drinks Jack Daniels out of the bottle. I met with the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants earlier today. They were in quite the mood. Note to self, never try to match the blob shot for shot, especially tequila. Toynbee was more than happy with my offer, cash for information, I assume, since he lacks the courage to exact revenge on Magneto himself. He's more than willing to assist anyone who does. What must it, what must it have been like for Toad to have been an indentured servant to such a monster, such a dichotomy between the Magnus of old and the more recent man, from abusive, genocidal demagogue to tweed-dressed school headmaster and sympathetic spokesman for the mutant cause. How does one predict the actions of an opponent who is so adept at being unpredictable? He started as the antithesis of Charles Xavier. He recruited a band of young mutants who would pursue the achievement of his own dreams, dreams of conquest, dreams of superiority. Time and again, he attempted to force his worldview down the collective throats of the planet's people. Time and again, 
he was stopped. From the depths of the savage land underneath Antarctica to being reverted back to childhood by one of his own creations from secret bases in the Caribbean of ancient myth and fantasy to principal and nursemaid to the children of Xavier's dream. Magneto has found every which way conceivable to advance his own political and genetic agenda. When he finally allowed himself to be placed in a world court, he was found not guilty of crimes against humanity. And then he started all over again. This time, the next generation of pawns were, ironically enough, his first generation as well. Pietro and Wanda Maximoff, Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch, the children of Magneto, both of whom had served the cause of humanity as members of X-Factor and the Avengers. When Magneto allegedly perished, he died a failure in the greatest sense of the word, for he was a man unable to make his own children see the justness of his cause, much less a species or an entire planet. How ironic indeed. How did he do it? How could he have come back time and again, always with a new method of conquest? One ridiculous attempt after another. And worst of all, how could anyone believe that simply having his asteroid home incinerated while entering Earth's atmosphere could actually kill this man? For God's sake, he was once genetically reverted to infancy and still found a way to regain his adulthood. What makes a man like that continue to believe in himself? He plays a recording of his conversation with Toad. Oh yes, of course I was frightened of him, Mr. Eiskalt. Did he hit you, Mr. Toynbee? Did he abuse you? Oh, constantly. Constantly. So why did you stay with him for so long? I was younger then. You have to understand. We had a way of keeping you... He had a way of keeping you under his control. And not just through the threat of physical punishment, either. How else? Sheer force of will, Mr. Eiskalt. Believed so strongly in himself, in his goals, in his methods, that no matter how ludicrous some of them sounded, you actually believed you would accomplish them. How did Hitler rally his country around him? Through the incredible allure of his confidence. Magneto was much the same way in that regard. For all his bluster, for all his ill-tempered treatment of myself and my comrades. We stayed with him because he made us believe what he strongly believed himself, that he was superior to us all. And by staying with him, we were ensuring our place alongside greatness. And for as much as I hate him, to this day, I still believe he may have been right. How? How could he do it? How could any man repeatedly fail in his appointed task and still have the sense of self-confidence, the enormity of ego to continue to believe in himself? It either indicates a completely delusional sense of self-worth or the unshakable belief in the correctness of one's ways, knowing which could make all the difference in the world when the opportunity to kill him arrives. I sculpt pictures Magneto burning in flames, obsessing over this man. Pages 33 through 35. The administrative building which houses the Mossad, Israel's security services. Gabrielle sits in front of a screen that must be a story high, and it displays a dramatic image of Magneto. Another large screen shows the very large face of Moira McTaggart. Gabby, when you and I chat, it's not as Gabrielle Haller, ambassador at large and Dr. Moira McTaggart, biogenics expert but his two friends who shared much of the same things in this life, much of the same joys and the same pains. Charles Xavier. 
Women who've loved that man are few and far between. We share that experience together. I thought that lonely, dark ocean of loss was mine alone to dive into. Ah, no, Gabby. But listen to us. You want to talk about Magnus, no? I need help in finding ways to neutralize him. Neutralize? But he's dead, isn't he? Recent evidence calls that into question. We get a flashback to Moira taking notes while baby Magneto plays on the beach and a scan of his genome. Lord knows I'm beginning to think that man can't die. You should have seen his eyes, Gabby, after he'd been reverted to childhood by the mutant Alpha that he had created himself. You should have seen his eyes. Blue. Clear. He was a beautiful child. I looked into those innocent eyes and foolishly thought I could change the way things were meant to be. I studied him, top to bottom, inside and out, as if by seeing what made him tick genetically, I could alter the kind of man he turned into. Maybe raise him right? Help, help him harness his powers for good? I, I was wrong. I knew that then, I know it now. But I thought I could give him a chance, a, a chance to be healthy and happy. Eyes bright with sunshine sparkling in him. The kind of chance my own son, Kevin, never had. You needn't explain yourself to me, Moira. My own son, David, lies in the vegetative state in the hospital, caught in your facility. A flashback shows Eric the Red aging Magneto back to his full size. I just wanted to help Gabby. If Magnus really is alive, his angers, his fury... His renewed hatred of humanity, they'll be all my fault. Then help us, Moira. Help us find a way to stop him before he has the chance to carry through on those passions. I don't want him sanctioned any more than you or Charles. But unless I can provide the people who have asked me to organize this posse with an alternative, what choice will they have? And you're the key, Moira. You have the answers we need, don't you? Ages 36 through 43, the Genetic Bioresearch Facility in Sayville, Long Island. Iskalt enters a research lab with Gabrielle Haller. A scientist shows them specs of a sleek new armor. Three weeks have passed since I last saw Gabrielle Haller. In that time, oh my God, I went Irish. Thank <laughs> 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 God, let me try again. <laughs> Three weeks have passed since I last saw Gabrielle Holler. In that time, it would appear we have both been very hard at work. I've put myself inside his mind, dug deep into his psyche, striving to understand him, predict him, while Holler has put to take the people who we... While Holler has put to take the people who will find a physical way to stop the monster. For that, we have spent the last two days at this research lab, as, doc as Walter Rosen, the head of the company, shows us the fruit of his labors. Believe it or not, and I hardly do myself, I really think this has a good chance of succeeding. It is elegant in its simplicity. From our original conversations, I'd expected something mechanical, something bulky. But this design Rosen is showing us, this will allow me to kill him as a man, man to man, as it should be. Another giant projection of Magneto using his powers appears on a screen. I mean, from a theoretical standpoint, of course, Little complications could always occur during practical applications. Things like reality, I mean, who can predict all the variables? 
That is to be my concern, Mr. Rosen. Yours is simply to be fully preparing me. Tell me all I need to stop this man. Operations, please call up subfile labeled TikTok. A screen shows scans of naked Magneto with cutaways to show his brain and skeleton. Name, Eric Magnus Lenscher. Extrapolated from previously existing data. Alias, Magneto. Height, 6 foot 2 inches. Weight, 190 pounds. Eyes, blue, gray, piercing eyes. Hair, white. Proposed source of biogenetic mutative abilities. Additional nerve fibers connected the pons to his medulla oblongata. Bioelectric activity projected at 17,000% above normal. Electrolyte conduction throughout nervous system enhanced by high iron count, 450% above normal in subject's blood supply. Bioelectric field readings analogous to planetary electromagnetic fields, synchronous alignment to 0.003%. Subject's neural synaptic sparkling accelerated to 14, 1,450% above normal. The research Moira McTaggart provided you came in handy. We couldn't have made do without it, Miss Haller. No one on this planet has an extensive a biological reading on Magneto as she does. I'd love a crack at her file someday. I would like a crack at him, Mr. Rosen. Continue if you please. Yes, well, from what we've been able to glean, the subject known as Magneto is quite simply the single most powerful being on the face of the Earth. And if anything, we have only borne witness to a fraction of its true powers. The man is a force of nature tied literally to the planet's electromagnetic field. How do we stop him, you may ask? Well, how did David slay Goliath? Think small. One man completely cloaked. One chance to bring him down. He talks of how we will slip through Magneto's impregnable electromagnetic field. Of how we will capture him by repolarizing that very field for but a moment. In essence, short-circuiting his back battery. In essence, short-circuiting his battery. And he talks some more, but I stop listening. I know the spirit of what he's saying, that the cancer can be surgically excised, and that I can be the scalpel. We see Iskalt being fitted for the armor, subjected to scans and beginning to train. Two more weeks pass as the technical preparations continue. Rumors of his return continue to increase as my patience continues to decrease. Here it is. This is the key to capturing him. The bioelectric mask. You can see him, but he can't see you. At least in an energy wavelength sort of way. How does it work? The mask will allow the wearer to perceive all bioelectric readings while the computer registers all ambient signals in the vicinity and the baffles built into the mask disperse the wavelengths around the receivers. So you say if he cannot see me with his own eyes, he will not see me at all? Over the course of the next two days, my body is measured so the mechanics can better serve it. Dr. Rosen, this skin sheath he will wear? A skin-tight lycra suit. No metal or irons in it at all. Purely synthetic fibers. A thin plastic vellum film envelops the suit, between which will be pumped a clear resin gel, which will be injected full of static electrolytes. For all intents and purposes, Mr. Escalt will be invisible. And that one advantage is the only hope we have of bringing Magneto down. Indeed, Mr. Rosen, perhaps it would best be time to work on David's slingshot? Iskalt begins training with his new armor and weapon, picturing himself killing Magneto over and over. The slingshot will be an enhanced taser gun, all parts of which are completely made of plastic, with a fiberglass needle and a nylon tether line for firing. 
I familiarize myself with its inner workings. Like, guys, I just, I'm going to stick with the Irish. It's it's not leaving. <laughs> Sorry for my inconsistent accent, everybody. Oh, <laughs> Melody, you ruined me. <laughs> I like, oh, <laughs> no, it was beautiful. Thank you. Uh, okay, I'm going to try this again. The slingshot will be an enhanced taser gun, all parts of which are completely made of plastic with a fiberglass needle and a nylon tether lining for firing. I familiarize myself with its inner workings. Like all guys, it is designed on a beautiful pattern of logic and simplicity. The parts fit together. How often can one say that in life? Ironic that I can only seem to find such order through a tool of death. But this gun is meant only to stun, as Rosen himself explains. If I can fire the needle into the base of Magneto's skull, piercing the medulla obligata, the taser will disrupt Magneto's bioelectric field, scrambling his neurosynaptic interface with his power for a two-hour time period. Enough time for a security team from the American vault penitentiary to capture him. As if it will come to that, as if I would allow the monster to walk away, I hold the gun and I have but one thought. Yes, it can be modified. We are ready. Now we await his return. I should leave here. Things have gotten uncomfortable. Time obscures the clarity of my motives. Today, Rosen brought in a publicity crew to photograph what they have been calling the Fugue Armor. He feels Genetech will prosper if the world knows the equipment that captured Magneto was developed here. I do not care for that. This is not a game of money to me, or of politics, or of prestige, or even of heroism. To me, this entire operation can be read as... To me, this entire operation can be readily simplified. This is a game of revenge. For what he did to my brother, for what he did to me, Magneto will die. Simple as that. Pages 44 through 46. Under the streets of Washington, D.C., lies the offices of the Commission on Superhuman Affairs. Yesterday, an electromagnetic storm ripped across the eastern seaboard, scrambling all mechanical and electronical systems over an 800-square-mile perimeter. We received a code blue alert this morning. Haller and I immediately flew in from Kennedy Airport. We were picked up at Dulles and brought into the, CS brought into the CSHA situation room. Five minutes ago, we were joined by National Security Liaison Henry Peter Geirich, X-Factor Administrator Valerie Cooper, and Alexei Vajin, the head of mutant affairs for the Russian State Service. I tense at Gyrick's words. Sweat slides down my spinal column. Is it fear or anticipation I feel? Images on more giant screens depict Magneto, Exodus, and members of X-Factor and the X-Men. The five humans sit around a table. Ladies and gentlemen, Magneto has returned. The screen shifts to the remnants of asteroid M over Earth. Gyrick talks. Magneto made his return in a rather dramatic fashion, having appropriated and modified the remnants of an orbital space station first discovered by S.H.I.E.L.D. a few months ago. Magneto brought his new home, dubbed Avalon, through Earth's atmosphere to interrupt the memorial service of a small mutant child affiliated with the brood of Charles Xavier. He offered these children of the Atom the opportunity to participate in his self-proclaimed quest for a haven, a heaven where mutants can be freed from Earth's choking hold. Convincing only one of Xavier's brood to accept his offer, Magneto returned to Avalon to a geosynchronous orbit high above the planet. Avalon's cloaking systems have been re-engaged. He is completely hidden from us. How are we to reach him then? Magneto has used an emissary named Exodus to recruit mutants to Avalon. 
Perhaps if we were able to capture or follow him. Neither Exodus nor Magneto has harmed anyone yet. Do you honestly believe any of our superhuman operatives will happily engage either in battle just because we ask? That's a good point, Peter. Maybe we should be doing we shouldn't be doing anything until Magneto does instigate or in initiate a problem. They talk and talk and then they talk some more. The very fact he exists hovering above us is cause enough for any actions we take. One way or the other, I believe we are all in agreement. Magneto must be stopped. If Magneto is divorcing himself completely from humanity, as he claims, and we can't get up to where he is, how can we truly expect him to come to us? Come to us? No, but if he is prepared to abandon his post, then there may be one place he will go. Pages 47 through 55, Wondagore Mountain. Magneto walks through the dark woods toward Magda's grave. Bova, in a blue cloak, waits in the shadows, scared. The walking force of nature, the failed man who would strive to be God, returns seeking absolution from the one source left to remind him of his lost humanity. Do not be afraid, gentle Bova. I am merely here to say goodbye. Magda, my wife, how different it could have been for both of us perhaps for the entire world, if only you had stayed by my side and I had been a more forgiving man than a vengeful monster. In the shadows, Iskalt is armored and has the slingshot gun ready. One chance, one bullet. Magneto kneels at the grave, dusts it off. A tear runs down his cheek. Iskalt aims the gun at his head, he pictures himself shooting Magneto. He remembers seeing his own brother die. And then he remembered the specific sequence of events leading up to his brother's death. Point blank, for all the pain you have caused, all the misery, all the anguish and fear, for my brother Ute, my brother you so callously killed, my brother who did not know what he was doing when he fell over your wife's grave, who did not listen when you asked us to leave this very private place you hold so dear, who did not care when you told him this was not a place for violence and never would be, who stupidly drew his gun, spitting out words of hatred, of rage, of prejudice, who fired at you with a murderous rage, point-blank right at your head, who was caught in the backlash as you simply gestured to protect yourself in a magnetic cocoon, who died when his own bullet ricocheted and pierced his thick skull, who forced you to break a vow of honor to the memory of your wife, who maybe, just maybe, might have been ultimately responsible in some small way for setting you upon the course of your life. Ute, my brother, a simple, stupid man, not a cause not a symbol for a cause, but a frightened lamb who sought to strike back at the wolf. The wolf who was doing what it was meant to do, being what it was meant to be, not a monster, not a villain, not less than human, but more, for he denies himself a human life in order to make the lives of others safe from the kinds of pain and hardship he has suffered. He is more than me, more than all of us. And Iskald drops his gun. He's camouflaged, but Magneto hears him and flies away. Mm -hmm. He says nothing. He knows he was just a weakness away from dying. My weakness. 
As I am aware, I was just an act of compassion away from being killed. His act of compassion. I live because of an act of humanity on the part of the creature I have called inhuman. Weeping, Iskall pulls off his helmet and considers taking his own life. How could I have been so utterly failed? Failed myself, failed Ute, and ultimately failed the world? Or did I fail in something more important? For wanting to kill the man named Eric Magnus Lenscher? For all the wrong reasons? Could I have failed humanity itself? Either way, I have lost. Lost everything I wanted and everything I believed in. Lost not because I was weak, but perhaps because I was strong. Strong enough to know that after all is said and done, I had lost very little because I had very little to lose in the first place. Because all I ever really had was hate. He chooses life. The end. Yay! <laughs> oh my god, I just I just realized this story is the Grinch who stole Christmas in a comic. It really is. <laughs> he's a little I, a little tortured. I, I don't know if he needed to be that tortured. But he's so hot, you guys. Adrian, I Yeah, that's so the other thing. <laughs> he's a really thinky fella. He just thinks a lot of thoughts up in there. Yeah. Uh, that was delightful. Let me hear some of your favorite moments from today's reading. Uh, Demanda, do you want to go first? I mean, Bova is always the star of the show. <laughs> but in, in, in true honesty, the real MVP, Melanie, the, the Scottish yeah. Yeah. That yeah. Moira the Taggart was so hot. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, I was, like, was what I was going for. So <laughs> I was listening to you talk, and I'm so like almost glad it happened to Chad afterwards because I'm sure I feel like it was happening to me. I was like, I cannot do a Scottish accent. I cannot be Moira. And then you started talking, and I was like, my accent is changing to Scottish because I'm listening. <laughs> I add more hope. I was watching clips of Outlander up until logging on. <laughs> I, I was just like, three... channel the, channel the. I have three accents. I have my Utah, like vaguely Canadian accent. I have my Southern accent from where I grew up. And then I was like trained in an Irish accent for a play once. And I go to it so easily. So Melody, once I heard you, it was all over for me. Yeah, like, <laughs> Irish was what I was trained in too, Northern Irish. So I was like, well, Northern Irish and Scottish are quite close to one another. So at mm. least if I go to Northern Irish, it's not that far off. Yeah. Uh, Justin, a favorite moment from today. Oh man, I just, I love... Everyone just swooning over Magneto. It's just like everyone's like, he's just such a monster, but he's such a great guy. But he's got all these things. He does bad stuff, but he also does good stuff, right? Can I it just here look at these naked pictures of Magneto? Yeah. <laughs> all bonding around this image of the nude guy that terrifies us all into a sweet slumber. Uh he's just He's very complex, and I feel like this got to that mm. all the different sides of Magneto and all the different reactions you can have to his mission, to his work that he has for the mutant people. That's the reason I love this issue so much. It's one of the few stories that captures all of the different sides of Magneto, from the trauma survivor to the megalomaniac, oh my god, I can't talk, to the world leader, to the terrorist. Uh, J.M. DeMatteis' recent Magneto series did that really well as well, capturing the different sides. Uh, Trung, beautiful Magneto voice, my friend. That was wonderful. <laughs> Great. Southern awesome. blob was amazing. 
Oh, yeah, that was, I completely forgot that he's from Texas, and I was like, I can't do a Texas accent. <laughs> Shadow, what are you doing to me? <laughs> you, can, you can do the hell out of Magneto's Gravitas, though. That was really good. Oh, great. Yeah, I basically just channeled, like, the only straight man in the theater um, club at <laughs> in high school. Like, you know, like that. <laughs> sort of walk around with that kind of confidence. Yeah. But, uh, Trung, did you have a favorite moment today? I really enjoyed the uh, Empyrean couple conversation. The whole exchange was really well done. I didn't realize, I, I like forgot how wordy the X-Men comics are. And so I was expecting myself to kind of like lose interest. But between the folks who were reading and the way that the dialogue is written, I was like, oh, this is very engrossing. <laughs> Empyrean is a white mutant who is profiting off of legacy virus patients, uh, the AIDS patients mm. allegory. Uh, he's also the white guy who's, like, channeling conversations about, like, the Holocaust and using Martin Luther King in his, like, argument, which is awful. Where Graydon Creed on the other side of Ted Koppel is the son of Mystique and Sabretooth, who is also, like, the leader of a political cult. Albeit, like, that, that's a fascinating interchange, that whole scene. Uh, Demanda mm. Martini's Ted Koppel was amazing. <laughs> that was a very good impression. <laughs> what was it like to research Ted Koppel, Demanda? I mean, it was just watching YouTube clips, honestly. Uh, but it, it's also just like, it's like that uh, standard uh, mid-Atlantic, like, broadcaster voice. And they have that kind of like, they speed up certain words, and then and then they pull back to get emphasis. Uh, Andre, do you have a favorite moment from today? Yeah, it was uh, Scott's pyro accent. I absolutely... <laughs> positively loved it because it was so on point it was like literally i was like no that's how pyro sounds like that's literally how he's going to sound for the rest of my days on this planet happy to help <laughs> let's talk about this pyro scene pyro is kind of callously hanging out with his buddies calling blob blubber boy on a boat and tolerating toad and uh a man comes down from the sky and tells him you are diseased and then floats back up into the sky do we have thoughts on this interchange <laughs> and fantasia and her bikini like and his. <laughs> yeah um this this is actually like it's the scene's very comical but this is actually probably one of the most devastating scenes for like pyro because he's basically told you can't come to heaven because yeah. you have mutant aids. Oh, by the way, you have mutant aids. And then Exodus just sort of flies away. Yeah, it's almost like Exodus a is such a fucking bigot. I've, I hated that character so much until Kieran Gillen started writing him just because there's so much that he's he in this era in the 90s. He is like he is a bigot for a mutant supremacist. Like he is, mm -hmm. he's he's literally a crusader. Like, yeah, he's a, he's the a original colonizer. Like, he's, he's got so the much worst. going on. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Demanda and I recently, with Gary Halpin, recorded a Patreon episode on Fantasia. We got to talk all about this incredible character. Uh, Demanda, do you want to talk about this iconic scene? It's one of my favorite X Men panels of all time. Her motivations are her own. <laughs> <laughs> um, Fantasia is such a weird mystery again if you subscribe to the Patreon you should definitely listen to us uh, talk all about her she is just such like a weird enigma where it's like they wanted to like kind of do something cool with her and so they just kind of kept her this like mystery because obviously she's escaping from somewhere you can tell she's the smartest woman on that boat and that she, like, one of these things is not like the other on that boat of misfits. But she's also like, these are also like my gays, so no one's going to tell me that I 
have to abandon my gaze. Yeah. Uh, like she, and I think she especially cares for Pyro, but like the rest of them, she's kind of like, oh, you guys, like I, she probably like Blob is, she's like, okay, you're kind of annoying, but whatever. I don't really think she likes Toad, and I don't she understand. Hate Toad, like, wouldn't you? But I mean, who likes Toad? Yeah. Not um, from where I, I'm squatting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I, would, I would hate Toad so fucking much if I had to be on a boat with this guy. Um, yeah. But anyway, yeah, Fantasia's cool, but she has these weird motivations that none of us will ever truly understand. Uh, Steve Duda, I say this with absolute affection. Your Toad voice was the worst. <laughs> That's a good way. Yeah, really so I. <laughs> I uh I, I listened to a lot of Tighten Up the Defense, this great little podcast about the Teen Titans and the Defenders. And I'm pretty sure that all of my voices are weird versions of what Hub does on that podcast because I hear the similarity. It's that and like Dana Snyder impressions. And that's all you get. Uh Steve, did you have a favorite moment from today? I had a lot of fun doing Toad's voice. I'd be honest. I don't want to be like my moment was the best because like everybody did great voices. I thought Andre's Exodus was amazing. I thought Melody's Moira is just like incredible. Trunks <laughs> Magneto. There's a lot I love about this issue. This is an issue that I have like a weird relationship with because I've read it many times and I have strange feelings about the idea behind why it happens. But like, I love that we dig really deep into Magneto. There are a couple of uh, culturally sensitive moments in this issue. Mm -hmm. The same speech we get to see a reference to the Sinte people, which is a much more respectful way. But immediately following, they say the word uh, gypsy, which yeah. for the context of the show, we're just using that. But that is an extremely problematic term. Uh, Steve, do you want to address any of the other issues that existed in this one? Well, yeah, because, I mean, so I don't have the direct citation for this. I know it exists out there, but I haven't been able to find it today when I was preparing for this episode. But, like, you can find Austin Gorton talking about it on The Real Gentleman of Leisure and on CannyXmen.net that Fabian Nicieza has said that, you know, a lot of this issue comes out of the idea that the editors at the time, Bob Harris and, uh, I'm sorry, I forget the assistant editor or the direct X-Men editor. Kelly Corvace, um, I believe, at this time. Thank you, Kelly Corvace. Uh, wanted specifically to make sure that the most prominent villain at Marvel, Magneto, at the time was not Jewish. And we're trying to retcon him to be a Roma person. And I think that there's a lot There's a lot that's been done about this. I actually used to read a lot of stuff from like Rivka Jacobs and some other bloggers on the X-Men internet in the old, old days but like people have done extensive work to try to figure out like what magneto's exact background was before this time and at this time and after this time and it was highly controversial that you know a man who had been hinted very strongly to be jewish and lived through the holocaust as a jew was now being proposed as a roma person and there's no reason that he can't be both it's basically the way a lot of people have understood this retcon but then it is very quickly retconned out in I think X-Men 72. Uh that this that Gabrielle just doesn't know what she's talking about at all. <laughs> um but yeah it, I don't know it's it's a controversial issue and it's a controversial issue because of the motivation behind that because personally I find it if you if you don't want to have your greatest villain be Jewish, I don't think it is somehow less offensive that you think it's okay for him to be Roma. Uh I think that says a lot about the motivations of the people editing these comics, honestly at the time. And it, doesn't make me feel any better that pad was writing quicksilver and has had his you know public comments about the Roman people we're not going to take time to have the israel conversation today but obviously that's a very politically charged topic as yeah. well mm -hmm. i have and here's my first public announcement of this i have recruited an incredible expert uh to come and do a Gabrielle Haller Patreon with me in a few months. So I'm actively researching Gabrielle right now, a character that I've always been fond of, but I'm now realizing is kind of beloved to me. 
Uh, Alicia, I would love to hear about your preparation for this particular character and what you know about her. She's amazing, and you did such a beautiful justice with your uh, your reading on her. Thank you. I I honestly spent a lot of my time like just working on specific pronunciation of words. I listened to a like a video about how to pronounce vowels differently, like people with uh, an Israeli accent pronouncing different vowels and like not having blended vowels. And like, once I got into it, I was like, you should have spent way more time on this, but you at least <laughs> spent some time on it. Um, but as a character and a person, like I didn't know a lot about Gabrielle. I did know I, you asked me earlier and I totally lied. I did know that she's Legion's mom, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. So I didn't know that. And I particularly really appreciated the moment that her and Moira had where she was like, oh, Charles Xavier is our thing we have in common. Um, and just the idea that like she wants to bond with Moira on how terrible Charles is. Like any person who really like decides that Charles is not for them is for me. Mm -hmm. uh, so I don't know. I think she's a really interesting character. I like how she's like a little like abrasive and and just kind of like says how it is and isn't afraid to be like, yeah, I'm not going to help you, you big dummy. Mm -hmm. Only if your motives align with mine, you know, like I think she's a cool character and I'd like to get to know her better. She I, I, is. I like she's her, wonderful. Uh, her, Moira and Amelia vote, like sit down together and like talk. Not Moira as she is now because I hate whatever this retcon is. Can we please but... add Lilandra to this conversation? Oh, yes, and Lilandra, <laughs> yes. All of these women need to get together. Oh, just and, and also and also Mystique because like, he fucked Mystique once. Yeah, <laughs> they were and married. Then, and then all of a sudden Eric bursts and he's like, "Wait a minute." <laughs> yeah, nobody <laughs> has uh, if you would like to know more about the time at Charles Xavier Fuck Mystique, Justin and Alicia just joined me for a Patreon on Charles Xavier Jr. It's a pretty good time. <laughs> uh, Caroline, did you have any favorite moments from today? Um, Yes, a lot, actually. Um, for one thing, when I heard Melanie's accent, I had to make sure my... Um, my microphone was on mute because I was going to yell, holy crap, like, very impressive. That was I was very surprised. Um. And then my one of my favorite parts, um, I mean, yeah, it was fun for me doing Rosen's voice because I've never done a guy's voice before. So I had to dig deep, you know, um, for that one. Um, and then, it, was it was really fun listening. You, you and Justin both had sections where you had to use like lots of sciencey terms. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, they're like, what does this mean? I was, I was thinking the same thing. It was cute. <laughs> I was trying to get my big boy voice voice out. You, know? <laughs> um, you got to channel your of, mom voice. Yeah. And then listening to all of um, Ice Skull's internal monologues and everything, just was pretty interesting. You know, sounded like an angry, angry guy. So I would love to see this character in comics again. I think he's really fascinating, actually. There's a lot of depth. His revelation at the end about what really happened with his brother uh, and like the obsession of his whole life that he'd created about the distorted reality. Do we have thoughts on Adrian Iskald? Uh, which is, uh, Steve, you always point these out to me. His name is Ice Cold. And I'm like, whoa. <laughs> I was just going to say his name is so funny. It, like, as I was telling you before we even got on the call, like we have two new German names in this in this comic that are completely like just words, like Ice Cold and Lynn's hair. <laughs> you know, when reading the scripts the other day, I was looking at all the German words. I'm like, oh, I do not envy whoever has to say this stuff. 
I made the mistake last time of not looking them up, and it was not good. (laughs) (laughs) You did a wonderful job. Thank you. I'm impressed that everybody managed to prepare so well because Chad told me about this morning. (laughs) Yeah, so uh, Arturo was going to do Magneto. Arturo got the flu. Uh, Arturo, we love you. We miss you. Uh, We'll see you next time. Uh, Trung, I can't believe you're here with us. Uh, I remain just an enormous fan. It's such an honor to have you here. Uh, What was it like for you to jump into this uh, issue? I'm kind of assuming it's the first time you'd read this one. Mm -hmm. Yep, it sure was. That's fine. Hey, great great job on your voice for no preparation for a second. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, uh, Melanie, this is our first time meeting. Uh, what a joy to connect with you. Thank you so much for your incredible accent work. Are you, uh, are you big into the X-Men? Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, so I have in the next room over like, uh, drawers and drawers of comics. And I probably actually have this issue as well in there. Cause I have all the X-Men unlimited from that time. Um, but yeah, huge fan. I've got Psylocke tattoo on my leg. Uh, I chose statues. I used to have a cat named Betsy, you know. <laughs> uh, you're delightful. Be prepared for an invitation back to my show. She's <laughs> a major Ask Betsy everyone here. Player. I will invite you again and again. <laughs> that's, cosplay, that's how we know, we know each other because through cosplay and through, you know, the Facebook Psylocke pages and everything, she's really big on doing a lot of Betsy cosplays. They're amazing. If you come with a stamp of approval from Caroline Cosplay, I already like you before we meet, but now we've got you're you're delightful. Uh, do we have any final thoughts on uh, X Men Unlimited number two? I think we've covered the major moments. This is a delicious issue. I love the complexity of how many places the script takes us. It's also jarring because they put so many giant magnetos in, but I think they had to do that to kind of counter all of the Talking Heads stuff happening in this issue. Overall, I think it's a really effective read with, you know, a couple of problems uh, because we're 30 years later now. Uh, do we have any kind of concluding thoughts on X-Men Unlimited number three? I just wanted number to say two. on air that I'm very curious to know where the um, Superhuman Affairs uh, meeting place is because Dulles is like one of the worst places to fly into if you're just... <laughs> <down now. laughs> as, as, as someone who used to live five minutes from Dulles, it's not a great airport to try to get to. And there's a toll road. It's super stupid. Get, so if they're trying to get downtown, why don't they fly into Reagan National? I'm very confused. <laughs> <laughs> Any other uh, concluding thoughts? I just wanted to say, um, so I really enjoyed everyone's reading on this because like this comic basically came out when I was 13 and I bought this comic when I was 13. This is one of those ones that back then my eyes glazed over and rolled backwards in my head because I did not understand a lot of the political stuff that was in there. So it's a completely different experience, I think, as an adult having experienced life in the world and been more in tune with that stuff to like see how that has seeped into comics over the years. And I think that you know, there's a lot of people nowadays that are like, when did comics become woke? And it's like, well, my friend, um, they've always been there. They've always been. We were just young and didn't quite understand it back then. So I like going back and and visiting stuff like this to see that. And I I thought everyone's reading was really enjoyable because rather than my eyes glazing over and rolling back in my head, I was like thoroughly engaged the whole time with the story. And I think it had a really like fun, deep meaning. And I just I enjoyed it. So thank you. It's a really complicated read with a lot of like mutant politics in it. It's really well done. I I thank you. And I agree with you. Going back and reading these as an adult is my favorite part of producing this show. I also feel like it was really cool to have an issue be so heavy on one character without that specific character actually being the center of the issue. Like to get to see 
all these different perspectives of Magneto that sort of like calls attention to the fact that people what people put out in the world about you is also how you're defined by like when someone new learns about you or like the fact that they were having like classroom discussions and lectures on Magneto and just like all the different perspectives like the whole issue was Magneto 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 but he himself wasn't actually in that much of it so I thought that was a cool lens for a character Uh, Alicia I think you hit the nail on the head there uh for me X-Men Unlimited number two is the X-Men Unlimited issue. And it's not just because I'm a giant Magneto fan or whatever, but like it does the remit of X-Men Unlimited in a way that almost none of the other issues really accomplish, which is like it synthesizes, however misguidedly, Magneto's whole history to like offer new readers like this is who this guy is. This is everything about him. This is what people think about. And yeah, Mm -hmm. it's really cool, like Alicia said, to do that without him being the guy. Yeah, and, and also like really pull, pull like little little characters from from his story. Oh, I'm so sorry. I was talking over you. Oh my god. No, that's fine. I think um, I go to then Trump. But uh, like again, but pulling like the actual characters. Like it's sometimes it's hard to do in like TV shows and movies where you can get the same actors. Where it's like because it's comics, you can literally just pull those characters from the past and use all of them because you know they're they're always there in the in the sandbox to play with. Yeah, I was just going to say that it does like that really clever kind of gossip girl thing where they both heighten the character's importance and also gives you a sense of the character's gravity in that world by having all of the other characters talk about him. It's such a beautiful storytelling trick and it does it so well in this issue. I'm super impressed having read this for the very first time. I also, oh oh, also thought that it was uh, very telling how they centered Magneto as the poster child for fearing the mutants like he was just one person they were like they all had that potential to be him so we need to make sure that if he's the one that they're looking up to or he could be the one that uh could usher in a voice we need to get rid of him mm-hmm. and it was it was so telling that like regardless of how they felt about X Factor at the time, who was the government-sanctioned mutant group, and X-Men basically fighting all these evil mutants. It didn't even matter what everyone else was doing. It was just solely focused on the fact that Magneto is a problem because he could be their their savior in that sense. Oh my god, the scene we did not talk about is Moira fucking McTaggart. We know how evil she is now, being like, when he was a baby and I was genetically altering him, I was just trying to be a good mom. Did you see how innocent and cute he was back then? Oh, (laughs) fuck you, Moira McTaggart. (laughs) (laughs) Hypocrite. Continuity has ruined you forever. Uh, I think we're going to close up here. Uh, If there's any final thoughts as we're doing our outros, I'd love to hear it. Thank you all for hanging out this afternoon. I had so much fun recording this with you. These are the best time. Uh, We're going to keep this going. We'll do one a month. We're going to do X-Men Unlimited number three in March, which is a Sabretooth story with Maverick. It's a very different tone. It's fun to take my show to these weird places. Uh, It's going to be a good time. Uh, As we are wrapping up, everybody, if you'll just let us know where people can find you online, we're going to put this out at the start of February. Is there anything you would like to plug and if you need to jet because i know we ran long if you need to jet when you are done with your outro please uh let me know uh let's go with steve first oh it's me steve duda and uh you can find me on x at howdy duda that's h-o-w-d-y-d-u-d-a h-o-w-d-y-d-u-d-a howdy uh you can find me on blue sky too go ahead and find me on there uh if somebody if somebody hits me up, I will log in. 
I'll do it. Um, yeah, and I, I've been promising it for months, but I'm just one last time. I'm going to say it. Uh, Trek Static is going soon. We are going live with the long-promised Star Trek podcast, Trek Static. Find us on every bit of social media on your podcasters. Just look out for that. It's Trek Static. Uh, so good to see you, my friend. Thank you for hanging out. Steve is also on the very next episode of my show coming out. We will uh, we will talk about that at the end. Uh, best yeah. line in the comic book today, by the way, was Fantasia saying, don't belittle my intellect, Mortimer, and I won't belittle your greed. They are, after all, mm -hmm. our two best features. Mm -hmm. uh, so let's go to Devanda Martini next. I'm Demanda Martini. You can find me across all social media platforms at Demanda Martini, uh, D-M-A-N-D-A-M-A-R-T-I-N-I. -I. Uh, coming up uh, this week when this airs, uh, I will be at Farpoint Convention uh, hosting a drag show, and uh, I will also be hosting or moderating a panel about uh, both the 92 animated series and the upcoming X-Men 97 series uh, with... Hopefully, if they show up, uh, panelists uh, Paul from Power of X-Men podcast and Nico and Jonah from X's for Podcasts. So uh, that should be a lot of fun. Uh, and then in March and or in March, I'm going to be at AwesomeCon. Uh, so come find me there. I'm going to be posting about all of the very cool events I'm going to be doing. And at the end of March, I'm going to be at WonderCon on the West Coast. I'm super excited. Uh, I get to be a part of the Hellfire Gala Walk that they just announced uh, as we're recording this week. And, um, yeah, it's going to be super great. Uh, come find me on, on the socials and hopefully see you guys at a convention soon. It's great to see you, my dear friend. I will accidentally be at WonderCon. So, Demenda, I'll see you there in March. <laughs> uh, let's go to Trung and then Scott. Uh, hi. Uh, thanks so much for having me on this. This was super fun. <laughs> it was exciting to wake up to a text from you just to be like, hey, are, do you, are you busy tonight? <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, I can be found on social media at Trungles pretty much everywhere, T-R-U-N-G-L-E-S. I use X, formerly Twitter, uh, and Blue Sky, and I'm on Instagram. I'm in all of the places at the same user handle, which is super neat. It's a very silly handle, and nobody else wants it. Mm. Uh, I don't uh, really have anything to plug. I don't have any, like, projects that are coming out around that time, but, uh, uh around in February, but... Uh, happy Lunar New Year um, and uh, happy Valentine's Day. <laughs> Everyone go read Trung's Incredible Karma and Love Story on Marvel Unlimited and buy The Magic Fish. It's one of my favorite books ever. Uh, great to see you, Trung. Uh, let's go to Scott. Uh, yeah, uh, Scott Free across social media platforms. Uh, if you follow me already, I am so sorry. Um, <laughs> Uh, I'm also going to be at AwesomeCon, uh, so come get pictures with myself and Demanda. I will be Pyro, so uh, nice synergy here. And um, I will also be at WonderCon, so I will see some of you there. I don't know if your Graydon Creed or Justin's HPG was more reprehensible, but well done on that insane voice as well. Uh, let's go to Andre and then Caroline. Okay, so I am Andre Mason. Um, I can be found kind of here because I am a Gray Malkin Lane a regular, so um, I don't have much to plug, but uh, pretty much you can find me on pretty much every social uh, channel uh, at Talk Nerdy to Me, and that's T-A-L-K-N-R-D-Y, number two, M-E. Um, so you can just find me there. Um, I've got, like I said, nothing to plug, but, you know, cosplay is coming up. You can definitely, uh, check me out, uh, at C2E2 soon. 
Um, but now that everyone's talking about going to WonderCon, I'm kind of having FOMO, so I might have to start to go to WonderCon now. <laughs> that would be great to see you. Uh, Andre was just on the show the last episode of January, along with Cree Michelle and Roger Pressa, talking about cosplay. It was so great to hang out. Thanks for coming again, man. Yeah. Uh, Caroline. Hi, I'm Caroline Cosplay. You can find me on um, Instagram, X, and Facebook under that name. I don't really have anything concrete to promote right now. I have a few cons I would love to go to, but nothing solid as of yet. So, It's great to see you, uh, Caroline. Uh, thanks again to Melanie for joining us today. Melanie, next. Hi, um, I am Melanie Bolin. You can find me on most social media places as at GeekyFit. Um, and I... I'm supposed to be at WonderCon because I think I'm helping my friend's Star Trek group do volunteer work there every day. So <laughs> I don't know when I'll be where or what, but I will probably be in some sort of Star Trek duds volunteering at WonderCon and then wandering aimlessly in a vacuum um, after that. Uh, and yeah, um, you know, I probably will have some yoga classes upstreaming this year. So if you want to do some yoga with me, you can just find me on the social medias because that's where I'll have it all like up. So that's all I got. I look forward to meeting you, Melody. That'll be lovely. Uh, over to Justin and Alicia. Hey, I'm Alicia. I'm Justin. We're the Ex-Wife Podcast. Um, you can find us on the internet at the Ex-Wife Podcast. That's T-H-E-X-W-I-F-E as in X-Men, not former wife. And if you want to uh, follow my cosplay adventures, you can follow me at Wilder Moves on Instagram and TikTok. What are we promoting, Justin? Comics! Read them! <laughs> Damn it! We talk about weekly comics on our show, so if you want to hang out and talk about what's happening right now in comics, that would be that. Uh, we're not going to any cons, and uh, Andre, I would just prefer if you don't go to WonderCon so we can have FOMO together, and I won't be alone. <laughs> sure. Uh <laughs> Uh, Alicia will also be joining me on the highly anticipated trial of Marvel Girl later in February. I'm very excited. Uh, this is a, a hugely anticipated episode. Uh, lastly, I'm Chad Anderson. I keep my own social media private because I've got kiddos, but those who are talking to me right now are welcome to add me. Uh, just ask me. Uh, the next episode of the show coming out immediately after this, we are shifting gears from Amazing Adventures to another crazy early 70s anthology book, this one called Astonishing Tales. Uh, the first uh, issue features a really horny battle between Craven the Hunter and Kesar. It's going to be a really good time. Uh, Steve Duda and Rob Kirby and Seth Martell will be joining me for that episode. Out on the Patreon immediately after this, you can look for episodes featuring Kandra and then Rainfire. And both of those are going to be fabulous. Thank you, everybody, so much for uh, tuning in. Thank you to this group in particular. What a joy. We will see you next time on Grey Malkin Lake. Thank you for listening to Grey Malkin Lane. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. Grey Malkin Lane is produced and recorded in Salt Lake City, Utah, with music and editing done by my husband, Michael Bell, and promo art done by the incredible Seth Martell. Look for us on Patreon, where we are releasing weekly episodes about obscure characters and facts. Uh, it's a great way to participate with the podcast for only just a couple of dollars a month, and it helps support what we are doing here. Also, the best way you could help Grand Malkin Lane is by sharing and liking and subscribing, but also please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll see you back here next time on Grand Malkin Lane.